Good evening and welcome everyone to episode 11 of Mentors on Fire podcast. We have a very exciting guest tonight. We're going to be speaking to Jen Albert Utz. Hopefully I said that right. Practiced a little bit. Uh, but before we get into intros, we did want to thank our sponsors for uh, making this podcast possible. So we're going to recognize Command Consulting LLC, solutions that work. They provide consulting services for electrification, including microgrids, emergency services, and shared services. So if you have any of those needs or you just want to uh, talk to somebody about developing solutions, uh, reach out to Command Consulting LLC. So tonight we have, in addition to our guests, we have my co-host Rob Persley, and Rob's going to give us the intro for Jen. So, Rob. All right. Thanks, Mike. Um, so it's uh, both an honor and pleasure. Um, Jen and I uh, were in year four together. Um, really, really appreciate it being around her, hearing her sense of humor, and, and more importantly, um, kind of her take on on life. I, I found it to be, uh, and I don't want to be over dramatic, but I found it very inspiring. So um, a little bit about Jen. Uh, she is a 22-year veteran of the Baltimore County Fire Department, currently serving as an assistant fire chief. In addition to providing executive leadership and professional oversight to over 1,000 career and 2,000 volunteer members. Uh, she is responsible for the preparation and continual review of the department's operating budget, enhancing human relations, and ensuring the fire department is well represented at all levels of government, dedicated to the foundations of public service, motivation, and the advancement of the fire service. She is also the chairperson of the Maryland Center for the Study of Health Effects of Fire, a commissioner on the Maryland Higher Education Commission's Fire Rescue Training and Education Commission, Man, that's a mouthful. A technical expert on the International Fire Service Training Association Fire Service Training Publication and Training Manual, manual Revision Team, and has served as a professional that. advisor on the NFPA Responder Forum. She holds a bachelor's and a master's in management from John Hopkins University and earned the National Fire Academy's Executive Fire Officer designation and holds several professional fire service affiliations. And as I said at the beginning, it, it is an honor and a uh, privilege to, to have you as a guest tonight, Jen. So, so thank you very, very much. Oh, no. Thank you, Rob. So, Jen, I'm looking. That was a pretty big intro. I'm getting uh, there's a couple of things. I made some notes here. I'm looking to uh, to speak to you about in addition to just the, the regular stuff that we dive into. Um, but before we do that, before we get into your career, tell us a little bit about Jen. How did Jen, um, where did you grow up? Where did you get your start? How did you, how did you make your way into the fire service? Or, or as we find with some of our guests, did the fire service make its way to you? Sure. So uh, I grew up in a, a small town uh, in Westminster, Maryland. It's about 30, 35 miles northwest of uh, Baltimore City in Maryland. Uh, so right smack dab in the uh, middle of the Mid-Atlantic uh, East Coast, uh, about 150 miles off of the coast. So um, so I grew up in Westminster. I was the youngest of four children. Our father was a Maryland State Trooper, and uh, we had the, uh, the, the 
defined privilege of having a stay-at-home mom who raised the four of us over the span of 30 years. And my sister and I are 15 years apart. So my mom was a uh, lifelong mom. And uh, we certainly had the great benefit of being raised, uh, having a, a mom in the household every day when we came home. So um, so I, you know, my dad was a state trooper. And um, I just loved everything about uh, the Maryland State Police. And they had the, the cool, uh, you know, dolphin helicopters. And I wanted so badly to be a, a flight paramedic. And uh, so, uh, but the uh, problem was, you know, I, I don't like guns. And so my dad and I had a long heart to heart. And I'm like, hey, you know, I want to be a flight paramedic for MSP. And he said, no way, kid. Uh, you know, you're not going to get through the police academy and, and uh, deal with that gun thing. So uh started talking. And then as luck would have it, I guess my parents actually uh, happened into buying a private ambulance company the year I graduated high school. Oh, and uh, so, yeah, so I went to work for them and I was like instantly hooked on the EMS thing. So I joined a, a local volunteer fire company and I was 19 years old. I, you know, I got my EMT uh, in the state of Maryland and started dabbling in EMS and, um, you know, did some private ambulance and then later on was fortunate enough to actually land as a security EMS person at the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg. Um, so I was always the go-to at the NFA uh, because I knew all the secrets of, you know, the buildings and the history and stuff. So we had a lot of fun with that. And then, you know, um, full circle, uh, 2000, I was lucky to get hired as a firefighter EMT in Baltimore County and um, started on my journey here, uh, like I said, back in 2000. So coming up on, uh, you know, completing my 23rd year and I have just been incredibly blessed with just opportunity um, and just a wonderful career here in Baltimore. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me um, and where I came from. So how, how does a state trooper and a, and a housewife manage to buy a private ambulance company? How does that happen? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> and he was retired, right? He retired in 1987 oh, okay. and they bought it in 1991. So I guess the second income helped, but, uh, anyway, as you know, it didn't, it didn't work out. Um, uh, you know, things, things didn't, didn't go as planned for them and they wound up getting away from the private ambulance business and just going back to work. Um, and you know, right. until, uh, my dad finally retired, I think it was in his late sixties when he retired, but, uh, yeah, so Interesting. Was that inter-facility transfer? They weren't doing emergency response. Yeah, no, it was all inter-facility. So, you know, nursing home runs and discharges gotcha. from hospitals and doctor's offices and yeah. Gotcha. So how did you stumble into Baltimore County? Talk to us about that. Because it's yeah. all, the reason why I asked questions the way that I asked, just so that you're aware, I found that there's a lot of people that come from various different backgrounds. I've learned a lot about different types of uh, fire departments. I, I know the New Jersey system. That's that's what I know. Very different than Ohio, very different than a lot of other places. And in Baltimore County, you're a combination department, very large combination department. We don't have those where I, right. I come from. Right. So how did you come to um, be employed? We'll call it employed by Baltimore County. What, what did that process look like? Yeah, so, you know, so I started applying to uh, all the major Metro Fire Departments um, in the, you know, early to mid-90s. It took me um, about seven years to get hired in Baltimore County. So Baltimore County, back then it was, you know, Baltimore County, Baltimore City, Montgomery County. Um, those were the big players in the career departments and, you know, um, some of the other jurisdictions, Howard County, Anne Arundel. Uh, they started coming on board and increasing their staffing. So at the time, Baltimore County was one of the larger jurisdictions for the paid department. 
Um, and, uh, you know, they it just had a really a great reputation of being a unique combination department. We're not like most other people, uh, most other agencies around. Uh, we have uh, 25 career fire stations, staff with 1,000 members, and 29 independent volunteer companies that's augmented with upwards of 2,000 members that um, support us. And so it is a very unique system. Um, it works very well for us. Um, we just have a lot of really dedicated uh, men and women um, and uh, and, and the agency always has. And so Baltimore County was always the, the most attractive to me. And, you know, um, you know, as Rob said earlier, uh, I have like a little bit of levity in me, but they, they have a really cool patch, you know, and so it was the coolest <laughs> patch. Um, so, you know, I mean, they, you know, you got to have the branding, right? So we had a really cool patch and, but no, I mean, they just, you know, Baltimore County had opportunity and um, was just always really appealing to me. And, and it was, and in all truth, it was the closest jurisdiction to where I grew up, right? I grew up in, a, in, in just a little bit, like I said, northwest of um, Baltimore, Baltimore County, Baltimore City. So, um, yeah, so it was closer and it was just really appealing. I mean, they were always, you know, on the cutting edge and um, just exciting to uh, to get involved. So the process is like many others. Um, you know, there's the written test and then the, the physical ability test and I remember that very distinctly. They held the, the test at um, at the Maryland State Fairgrounds, and I remember finishing the test and getting in my car, and my legs felt like jello. I was like, oh, my gosh, what have <laughs> I gotten myself into, right? Um, but then fast forward, you know, the oral interviews and going through the interview panels and then down to the selection process. So um, the year I was hired, they hired uh, four classes, fire classes, and between 1999 and 2000, and I was in the fourth of those four classes of about 100 people hired. Um, so wow. there was a – a big retirement in the end of the nineties in Baltimore County. And so I was just right place, right time. And my, you know, my ticket finally got punched after all those years of trying. So uh, you were not certified as a firefighter before you no, got hired? No, EMT only. So I had no fire rescue experience whatsoever. Okay. And what did that initial training look like for you? hundred people is a lot of people to put through a fire academy. Yeah. Well, my class was 40, right? So I was the fourth mm-hmm. of four classes. So 40, 40 men and women, uh, five women, 35 men. And um, <laughs> it was, uh, so it was 18 week program. Uh, we started out um, in Towson, which is our, our, our burn building was condemned. So we wound up commuting to Aberdeen, which, so, you know, our commute became twice as long as it should have been. And so the days became longer, but we went through, you know, the structure program, fire one, fire two, hazmat ops, rescue tech, vehicle machinery, the whole nine yards, uh, firefighter safety survival. And then we got to the end. Those of us who were already certified uh, got a quick refresher and we hit the field and we rode for two weeks while the rest of our class uh, took their initial EMT certification and called up to us. And then we all graduated and and hit the field. So it was it was 18 week program at the time. Um, We're up to 26 now, 26 weeks for a new fire EMT class. Yeah. So things have changed in 22 years. So, Jen, a, a quick question. I, I know in a lot of the larger departments, uh, becoming a paramedic sometimes is optional. Was it optional in Baltimore County? Yeah, and, and right. So my story goes, I wanted to be a flight paramedic. Right. And so when I got into the fire department, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, 
I'm getting through this fire school stuff and I'm going right into EMS and, and getting my okay. paramedic. And um, so, but, you know, truth be told, um, in our organization, the pathway for promotion is much greater on the suppression side. Sure. And, um, you know, I heard the same thing to all young people here in the fire department. Don't take paramedic. Don't take paramedic. You know, you'll be stuck on the box. Well, I love the box. I mean, the medic, I, I rode the engine half the time or the medic half the time. And I tell you guys, you know, the best stories always start that one night I was on the medic, right? They're the best mm-hmm. stories in the fire yes. service. So, um, so I actually was, it was talked out, talked away from taking paramedic. And that's probably my single biggest regret in my career. Um, because that's really what I came into this profession to do. And I wish I would have done it. And still to this day, you know, if I had the energy, I think that I had, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe I would try it. But um, yeah, so I never did. And we don't have to be paramedics. You do. You must be an EMT to ever promote. So uh, we have very few people who do not have, you know, EMT basic certification because you have to have that to promote. Um, But yeah, so paramedic was not a requirement for us. Okay. So uh, I'm also not a paramedic. Uh, this different system, New Jersey, there is no fire-based ALS in New Jersey. So there was never a reason for me to get it. It was always something that interested me, but never would I would never be able to use it through the course of my duties. So it never rose to the to the top of my priority list. Then moved to South Southeast Florida, where paramedicine is everything. Uh, I'm sure, would have came in handy where I'm located now. Mm-hmm. So your department provides ALS transport services? Yes, we do. Yep. So all of our career units are, well, all of our career units uh, full-time, 24-7 are ALS. And then we have some uh, M-shift peak demand units that are ALS as well. And then we have five E-shift, which are Monday through Friday, seven to five staff. And three of those five are ALS. The other two are designed to be BLS um, you know, by nature, but if we have the ALS providers, we, you know, we obviously always upgrade to ALS where we can. And then we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of officers um, who have promoted through the ranks who started out in EMS and, uh, and now are suppression officers and maintain their ALS. So we have some paramedic engines, you know, out there to help, you know, upgrade and EMS supervisors out in the field, eight of them in the field to upgrade. And they mostly upgrade our volunteer units that run as BLS, but a lot of our volunteer units run as ALS as well. So, um, you know, we're pretty fortunate um, in the model we have, but we're like everybody else who we're really starting to hurt um, as a system for paramedics, right? That I think all across the nation, you, you look around and there's a deficit of paramedics and, and we're starting to feel that, that, that squeeze too. Interesting. So I, I feel like I have to ask, does Baltimore County have a flight paramedic uh, position? Do you provide any type of air asset that way? No, no. The state of Maryland depends solely on um, the Maryland State Police for their okay. helicopter service. And we do, you know, there's a there's a helicopter that is uh, in the hangar in Baltimore County. And if we need that in the north part of the county where, you know, it's more rural, then we'll call for that. But um, around the Baltimore Beltway, we have so many hospitals and so many good hospitals in the Baltimore region. Uh, we do primarily ground transport, you know, even for trauma patients. And less, like I said, if it's up in the North County or an extensive, you know, prolonged extrication. Um, so but we do use MSP uh, for their flight medics, but perhaps not as much as the, you know, the Western Maryland counties or the Eastern Shore counties. Right. Now, you, how many females were in your recruit class in that hiring? Uh, yeah, five of us in uh, out of forty in my in my class. And what is the diversity of 
at that time, was it a diverse fire department? What would it look like, especially for from your eyes as a female coming in? Yeah, so it really, um, we are now uh, much more diverse. I think we're currently at uh, 25% female work wow. in our workforce. Uh, yeah, nice. um, and so at the time, um, you know, no, I mean, it, it wasn't as diverse um, and with, with, with women and minorities. Uh, we certainly uh, had diversity and you could, you could see it. Um, and if you look through that lens, you saw it. And at the time I got hired, um, the first female ever hired our fire department, Danelle England Danziker, was a battalion chief when I came in. And then we had two female captains and I uh, wound up going to the shift eventually with one of those two female captains and a handful of lieutenants, some EMS, some suppression. But at the time, I mean, like I said, I can count on one hand how many female officers there were in the, right. in the agency. Uh, right now we have a female fire chief, female assistant chief, uh, battalion chiefs, two bureau chiefs, a whole bunch of fire captains, a whole bunch of fire or EMS captains. So, you know, as far as women go, uh, we are looking way better now than we did 20 years ago. And so, um, you know, it was definitely, it definitely has always been a priority for our organization um, to enhance and embrace diversity and, and that's women and, and minorities. So um, I think we're, you know, we're, we're doing well, um, but we're like anybody else. We always have room for improvement and we always seek, you know, to diversify. We just hired a brand new class um, Monday. And so um, this class is an EMT class, probationary EMT class. And um, it's uh, 41% women and 53% minority. So, um, you know, we're Fantastic. getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah, your area, <clears throat> your region there has uh, quite a few female fire chiefs. Yes, yes, yep. Yeah. Fantastic. So you get hired in 2000. What is your, um, what is your first year look like? And the reason why I ask primarily for you is uh, we're, we're getting to a point where there's not a lot of people still serving that have a pre and post 9-11 career. So what, what was that first year like? Yeah. So, you know, um, I came out of recruit school and I went to, um, our Towson fire station, which was, uh, you know, a truck company. So two engines, truck, uh, medic unit. So I spent a couple months there and then, at, you know, we were you know, probationary employees. So we were temporarily, you know, temporarily assigned everywhere we went. And so after a few months, I shifted over to an engine company, um, actually where I live now in Parkville, a single engine, single medic. And, uh, so spent, you know, half my time, like I said, half my time uh, riding the engine, half my time riding the medic, just kind of getting my feet wet and, putting some feelers out, but I tell you going to Parkville was like the blessing of my career because, um, it was less people, right? Less people had a female captain and, and a crew, um, that just embraced, uh, me as a new person, as a young person and, um, helped me map out my career. So year one, I'd have to say, you know, what, what I spent year one doing was learning, you know, learning the fire department, learning the jurisdiction, which is, a, you know, we're 610 square miles. We're huge. Um, and you know, we're, we're right now we're at 144,000 calls a year, 80% EMS. And even back then we were over hundred thousand calls a year. Um, so we were rocking and rolling, you know, especially on the medic units on a daily basis. So learning the job, learning the district. Um, but mostly, um, what I found in my first year, I was 26 when I got hired and I thought, man, I thought I was squared away. You know, I thought I was you know, mature and <laughs> oh, boy, was I wrong? I was so immature, you know, uh, personally and professionally. And so. 
um, really, you know, the evolution of my first year was getting to be with the right people in the right station and getting the support and encouragement um, to get my confidence up to where I needed to be. Um, and once I once I gained my confidence, I mean, the rest is history. I mean, I just took off. So you said they helped you to plan out your career. What What did that plan look like? Yeah, so at the time, the captain and lieutenant sat me down, and they asked me where I wanted to be in my career, and I said, right here. I'm doing it, right? I'm doing it right now. Half the time on the fire engine, half the time on the medic unit. And they said, no, no, no. That's not what you want to be. That's not where you're going. So where do you want to be? You know, where do you want to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years? And um, so, you know, we had two, two – the next rank up for us, the promotion, would be fire specialist, which is, you know um, – Rise behind the captain, you know, uh, responsible for fire prevention inspections in the in the company and uh, you know, PFSEs and other administrative adjunct details and training and, and community uh, pre-plans. Or you could become a FADO, which is a fire apparatus driver operator, and, and go drive engines and trucks. So I elected uh, to stay in the specialist realm because I wanted to keep, you know, fight fire. I, you know, drivers don't fight fire unless you're on a truck, then I guess you do some work there. But, um, so I started out, I'm um, just taking classes and, um, mapping out, you know, what I needed to be my inspector, you know, classes for, for inspector or for fire specialist. And then I went ahead and got turned in as a backup engine driver at my company, which was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that, but, um, I didn't, I didn't pursue the truck company work, um, as far as driver goes, cause I wasn't at a truck company and I really didn't want to be at one. I enjoy being detailed and riding the truck, but I didn't really want to do that full time. So I was more of an engine person, an engine company ops. And then we just sat and talked about, you know, five years is the first, you know, officer test you can take. You can take, you know, lieutenant's test in five years and captain two years after that and chief two years after that. And so I just started banging out all my classes. And by the time I hit year five, I had all my credentials to be the chief of the fire department as far as professional qualifications and certifications. Of course, education came later for me. Um, I was in my 30s when I went back to school for my education. But you know, this sat, they were really methodic. They were, you know, and they were really um, just motivational, inspirational, and um, just helped me map it out. You know, looked looked at the course calendars, figured out which classes to take when, and and just, um, you know, it became, it became a hobby almost of sorts the first couple of years of just really taking classes and getting it all done. And I'm, I'm thankful that 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 happened because I know people now that I mentor and, and, and work with and they still haven't taken the fire officer too. I'm like, what are you waiting for? It doesn't get any better. You know, I mean, it's no more palatable when you're, you know, 30 than you were when you're 20. It's still, you know, it's still, a, you know, a course you have to take. So just take it and get it out. So. So Jen, did uh, you said that you uh, just started knocking out courses? Does Baltimore County have like a, uh, an official, development plan for you to follow if you want to move up or was this mostly uh, picking the brain of, of your officers to figure out okay if I want to be here what's advantageous for me to take how did that work for you guys yeah so at the time it was the the latter it was the picking the okay. brain of the other of company officer now um, actually when I was the chief of training for a few years we developed what we call a pathway to promotion and mm -hmm. so when all of our new recruits graduate, um, we give them a copy of the courses they need and how to map that out. And, you know, the different the different pathways that they can take, you know, whether it's EMS or specialist or, or you know, driver up through, you know, 
uh, all the way up to, to the chief officer rank. So, um, and then each one of our new recruits now also have a mentor, which I didn't have when I came through, which is a really nice thing. They're on probation for two years and their mentors attached to them from day one. And so we count on the mentors also to help them guide them into their you know professional promotional pathways. What does that mentorship program look like from the mentor perspective? Is it, are they selected? Are they recruited? Are they vetted? What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, so every time we have a class um, before we launch the next class, and we typically um, have classes in March and September is our budget cycle for classes, but um, the recruitment manager will put out a, a notice to the entire department, you know, seeking mentors for the upcoming class, whether it's a fire class or EMS class. And uh, yeah, they, they submit their, you know, their names, their letters of interest, and uh, and then they get vetted through the recruitment division. And then, uh, you know, they pass it on up for us to take a look at and, and you know, put the seal of approval on who they've selected. So, um, and we get way more people requesting to be mentors than we, than we have recruits. So it's really, it's a program that's probably been in place for at least a decade and um, highly successful. What do you, um, and, what, do, what, do you gauge, what do you gauge as an outcome? I'm just curious. What do you gauge as an outcome for, very successful what is the metric or metrics that you use? so it, it's 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 anecdotal right so it's it's feedback it's feedback from the recruits it's feedback from the mentors and um you know I, it, it really is anecdotal like you know we we, we you know we should have a, a process in place to measure you know i guess you know retention rate and uh, but up until 2021 we didn't have a retention issue <laughs> sure we'll get into that right so um we do now um, but prior to 21, we didn't. Interesting. Yeah, the, you know, mentorship in some cases happens by accident. And in your department, it seems like it's happening on purpose. Um, you know, one of the, the roles that I like to play where I am at, at the fire academy at Miami-Dade College, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm in a leadership position as an administrator, but truly trying to to play a mentorship role for new recruits um, we've seen metrics that include uh, uh, an academic failure rate um, that was as high as 14 of 40 when I first started to regularly zero to one per class. Um, so something like that is, is really something that, that's very, very, um, it keeps me motivated to to do more. What comes What comes next? So that's why I was kind of asking if you were if you were measuring anything at all. Yeah, no, I think um, you know there's certainly room for improvement for us for that. Um, the one thing about our mentors is you know uh, so our curriculum you know we teach the Maryland Fire Rescue uh, curriculum for for firefighter one and fire two and. So, um, you know, all of our instructors at the Fire Rescue Academy, and then we bring in folks in the field, uh, we call them recruit training cadre. We, so we enhance our Fire Academy. Every time we have a class, we bring field members in, up to five of them, and we put them through uh, Maryland Fire Rescue MIFRI skills sessions to make sure that they are teaching the same skills that uh, our instructors are teaching that the students are tested on. So we don't actually encourage a whole lot of drill time um, or, you know, um, guidance as far as, as academics go with our mentors. Um, right. Because we fear, you know, because you guys, right, you go through the program and there's the way you're taught and the way you're tested. Then you get to the field and there's the way the field does it. And we don't want to mix them up in that process. So we actually discourage um, uh, some of the, you know, um, 
I guess, you know, intertwining the mentor with um, the academic part of the academy. It's more for support, guidance, uh, you know, being available to answer questions. They do have them come out and have meals at their shift, you know, to short, nice. you know, introduce them to the, you know, the environment, the culture a little bit. But um, we, we ask them to hold off a little bit on providing instructional guidance because we don't want to send mixed signals and, and, and mess them up, you know, midstream. Makes sense. So mentors, mentors are in, engaging with them through the academy process and after or yeah for the after. full two, the full two years so nice. they were assigned their mentors on day one and then last night we have what we call family night and we bring all their families down and we do a you know introduction and we avail ourselves to talk to them answer questions about the program and the rigors you know the academic rigors of, of recruit training and then the, the mentors are all there as well to you know get some face time with their mentee and their families and so we establish that connection early on and then when they graduate you know, they're always a resource, you know, for the first two years to get them through their probationary period. So, Jen, you, you said this program has been in uh, in place for about 10 years. Any idea how long it took to get it off the ground? Because that, that sounds like a, a, a very comprehensive program. Um, I'm, I'm kind of impressed uh, with it. So do you know how long it took to develop that? I mean, obviously, programs like that are, are in constant states of development, right? You're revising and, and improving, but I'm just curious – you said that when you first uh, were hired, you didn't really have anything, and then now you have this. So, yeah, and you know, and so, so, and I was hired in two thousand, and I think you know, we've had this program at least ten years, maybe fifteen. Uh, so I was low enough in the organization that it it didn't really um, I wasn't part of that you know okay. that, developing okay. that mentor program. It was the former chief and the chief of staff and assistant chiefs at the time that really uh, leaned forward on that. So um, you know I, it, it's not I mean in, in the grand scheme of things from my perspective it's not that heavy of a lift. Um, you know we do provide them some some training and guidance and orientation and refresher. Uh, but mostly it's about, you know, um, you know, being available and, you know, helping them in any way they can. So I, I don't think it was that heavy of a lift for the organization at the time. It just requires, it's like any program, right? It requires support, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from, from the chief of the department. And, um, and we certainly had it back then. So, and we continue now. I mean, our current chief, you know, obviously continues to let us uh, continue this practice and then she supports it too. Well, it's a big empowerment piece too, right? You, you, you keep, your regular, and I say regular for lack of a better term, your regular line people engaged, um, and they're really supporting the next generation that's coming in. Um, so that's a very powerful message being sent that they can have that impact. Yeah, and our mentors take it very seriously. I mean, they show up to family night, um, and they'll show up again at graduation, and they'll be sitting out in the audience and uh, you know there to to help celebrate the accomplishments with their recruits. So. Um, yeah, it is. It's great. You know, and I, I do informal mentoring, you know, in the organization uh, with people. And it's just it's just so rewarding, you know, to sit down with somebody and help them map out their future. Right. So I'm on the back end of my career. Um, I'm winding down and these these folks are just winding up and it's so exciting to watch. And it's to me, it re-energizes you. Right. Like so. And we'll see that. We'll see people who have been in for quite some time who have some tenure and all of a sudden they pop up and they want to be a mentor. And I think it just, it recharges your batteries when you, when mm-hmm. you get back in and you see, you see, you see the passion and energy and the excitement in, in these new people that just really want to do this job. And um, so, yeah, I mean, mentorship is probably one of the, the best ways to recharge your battery. So I feel like I need for you to educate me. Um, 
How does this work with the independent volunteer companies? Are they going through the same training as you? Is the pipeline the same? Or how does that work? Yeah, so the the volunteer companies, they're they're independent 503Cs or 501C3s. And um, so, but they, they operate under our system uh, operationally. So, um, you know, they, they, they do all their own recruiting um, of their membership and they have their own processes for vetting them you know, voting them into their company. And then they take, um, so our fire Academy, we're, we're accredited. So we teach uh, all the MIFRI programs. Then MIFRI also has a regional office, uh, Northeast, and they, they teach at our Academy as well. So all the courses are, are offered, you know, we have a, a spring and a fall semester, um, through MIFRI and they come in and teach. And so our volunteers sign up for the class because they're affiliated with us, um, through, you know, through the fire department here, they take the training, which is free for them. Um, they get credentialed. They go through you know, the same processes, um, and you know EMT, Fire One, Fire Two, Fire Officer Series, uh, and start riding in their in their in their individual companies. And um, you know I, it it seems kind of odd, right? So you look at so many combination departments where you embed career folks into the volunteer companies, and for us we're separate. Um, but we have a we have a great group of, of folks, and and operationally it works very well. Um, you know, some volunteer companies, uh, are, you know, do better than others as far as response times and response rates. Um, and so when we have that, they go on what we call dual dispatch. And then we, uh, you know, if they drop below 85%, you know, full, you know, fully staffed at one time response, we put them on dual dispatch and we add a career engine to all their responses. And then if they get out with us, we go in service and let them take the call in their district. Uh, otherwise, we continue in. And so um, it kind of offers, it's, it's a bit of an incentive for the volunteer company to get their staffing back up um, and get their response rates back up because that's a pride thing, right? You don't want some other company coming in and taking your calls. And so, um, but it, it works very well. So administratively, they, you know, they administer their own affairs within their fire company. And operationally, they, they operate 100% under us and our, our SOPs and tactical series. And and, they, and and we integrate really well with one another. Um, so we're very fortunate. Our model works well for us. Is there a promotional process for the volunteer company that mirrors the career side? Now they, uh, you know, their their companies, you know, do their own elections for you know their leadership positions, line officers, and board members. So, um, so they they create their own, you know, their own criteria for you know those positions and um, promote, you know, with within their organization, they appoint you know through elections of, right. of those officer positions. Interesting. Is there a mentorship aspect to to their like formal like you have on the career side? Um, not formal. Um, a lot of the volunteer companies have their own independent, uh, mentorship programs in their individual companies. Um, but not, nothing uh, formal like us, like not organization wise. So like they operate under the Baltimore County Volunteer Firefighters Association, which has its executive board that, you know, has oversight over those 29 companies and right. that executive board, you know, um, we, we meet with them, uh, several times a month. Um, but there's nothing formal like we have. It's, 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 company-based mentorship programs. And I, I probably should have asked sooner. I'll ask you now. Baltimore City is in Baltimore County? No. It is not. Two, se two separate jurisdictions. The city of Baltimore 
um, is its own jurisdiction, its own government, its own fire department in Baltimore County is a horseshoe that wraps around Baltimore City. And we are our own county government and our own fire department. So we are separate. We run mutual aid uh, with one another, but we are not connected in any way. Interesting. Yeah, the uh, was it always that way? What, what is the history behind Baltimore City and County? I would, ima- would imagine well, it's got to be pretty interesting. Yeah, you want a history lesson, so quick, down, and dirty, right? So uh, the city of Baltimore provided um, into the 1800s, they provided all fire uh, suppression services to, to the citizens of Baltimore County as well. And so at the time, Baltimore City was much bigger. And we started to, you know, evolve in, in, in jurisdictional boundaries. But there was a fire in the uh, early to mid-1800s in Towson, in our county seat. And it took a prolonged period of time for Baltimore City to get equipment out there and put our fire out. So we had a major fire in our county seat. And uh, the, the the wizards at the time decided that they, we, it was time to create uh, its own county fire department and to separate from Baltimore City. So in... 1882, uh, we ventured out to become our own uh, fire department in Baltimore County. So up until that time, wow. 1882, we have, yes. And so, yeah, so prior to that, we relied on 100% on Baltimore City to provide our suppression efforts in the county. And it wasn't <clears> until, <throat> well, I think the 60s or 70s that we started doing actually EMS here. So I think it was the 60s. Interesting. So you just had your 140-year anniversary. Am I doing the math right? About that, yeah. Yeah. I don't have my I don't have I don't have my shoes off tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten that comfortable yet this evening. <laughs> so, what was the the first step for you, firefighter? Was to the engineer position? You said no. Nah, fire you, fire specialist. Fire specialist. specialist. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, and then from there you went where? What was what was next for you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually promoted uh, very rapidly in the organization. So at year four, uh, I was promoted to fire specialist. And then at year six, I made lieutenant, fire lieutenant. And I spent two years doing that job. And then in 2008, I made eight, year eight, I made fire captain, spent four years in that job. And then I promoted uh, in 2012 to battalion chief and uh, Stayed in operations for two years until I was uh, advised by my former fire chief that I was being reassigned to the training division. And that position at the time was called fire director. It was a a lateral position. And so I was reclassed from battalion chief to fire director, which we now call bureau chief. Then I spent a few years down there and made deputy chief. And then in 2016, made assistant fire chief. And uh, this is where I've been. Since then, I did spend uh, six months in 2019 as the uh, as the interim fire chief while they did the uh, national search to find our, our next fire chief under the current administration. So I've uh, done everything but paramedic. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, then, and, uh, then you never know, right? There's yeah. still time. Right. right, right. Yeah, it's a big world out there, you know. So the first step to a supervisory position, six years on the job. What yep. does that look like? Because now you got to leave the firehouse that you were in, I would imagine. Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was transferred uh, when I made when I was promoted. So, yeah, so, you know, uh, so <laughs> I was a little uh, I, I was a little uncertain that, I, you know, you, the, the whole culture, right, um, the environment says, 
you should have X amount of time before you promote, but the but HR rules say you only have to have five years. And so I competed and I wasn't really sure I was going to take the promotion. And my captain, my former captain, she said, you know, Jen, if you wait until you're ready in your mind and you've experienced everything there is to experience, you'll be 30 years as a backstab firefighter yep. and the rest will be history. Right. And so she said, you're taking this promotion. <laughs> and, um, and, and I did, I took the promotion and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I developed a transition plan and I decided, you know, who I was going to be, how I was going to be when I arrived. And, um, you know, I, I, it was, it was, uh, it was a great transition. I went to the West side. I'd never been on the West side of the County before Worked with a bunch of people I didn't know. So I actually, it was uh, beneficial because I got a fresh start and, uh, it was kind of funny. I was detailed to, um, to, a to another station one day and the, and the guy said, Hey, you know, loot, how, how long until you retire? I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, well, you got like 30 years, right? And I'm like, no, who, who do you think I, you think I'm the other lieutenant that has 30 years? And he's like, no, 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 I know who you are. And I'm like, I know I have six years in the job. I've got 30 more years to go, you know, are you kidding? He's like, oh, I, I never would have guessed that. And he's like, oh, it's... And, and it was kind of flattering, you know, I mean, I guess that to sure. me that, that symbolized that it signaled that I, you know, I, my transition plan was, was right, that I was conducting myself as if I, you know, I had the, the, the right blend of competence and confidence to arrive there. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was fun. Um, I spent, you know, I spent a few, a few months at, on the West side. It was, a, it was down 95 and you've been down 95, Michael, right? Like sure. 95 is no fun, whether you're in Baltimore or New Jersey, uh, or, so, or Miami. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, you know, I try, we have, we have an open transfer system. We can go any place we, we can put transfer requests in. So I went back to the battalion that I came from, different station, a little bit slower station. Um, and that was by design. Uh, the, the captain there was the union vice president. So he was off half the time administering union business. So I meant I was acting captain half the time. And when he came back, I was so far on behind on details I was getting detailed to the, the two neighboring truck companies and so I was doing some truck time as a you know as a as a fill-in truck lieutenant and that was fun you know so I was, got to experience a little bit of truck work as an officer and uh, but most you know again my, my passion was always the engine so it was it was neat um, but I you know I realized because our system is different right we have a captain and lieutenant assigned every piece that's what and I was just so, going to ask you. What, what's the yeah. difference between the two? Yeah. So captain and lieutenant assigned to every station, every shift. So together. You know what? Yeah, together. Um, so if you're a truck, if you're a truck company, you've got the engine, the captain on the engine, the lieutenant on the truck. But if you're a single engine company, your captain's up front, your lieutenant's in the back. Unless the captain's off, you act up, or you get detailed out to backfill a spot somewhere else in the battalion. So. So I, you know, I was like, uh, you know, half the time you're a firefighter, which was fun and half the time you're the officer. So, but I'm like, that's just a stepping stone, right? Like I want to be the captain, you know, I want to be the one that's, you know, always in the front seat and, and, and always, you know, making the decisions for the shift because, you know, um, you know, when you're a hey, lieutenant, you still have all the, all the responsibility, but you don't have all the authority. Jen, quick question. What, what is your yeah. staffing size on a unit? So if, if, you have a captain four. and a lieutenant. How many? Yeah, four on an engine. Yeah, minimum, then, minimum staffing. Minimum staffing four on a truck. Minimum staffing four on an engine and two on the medics. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say it straight out. I don't love this setup. <laughs> yeah. You get you get promoted to sit in the same seat that you were sitting in before. How's that work? Uh, but uh, about half the time, yeah. 
Yeah. So what is the <laughs> what is the promotion? Talk to me about what 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 are you what are you being promoted to? To do what? So I mean, lieutenant is you know it's the first line supervisor. So when the captain's there, the lieutenant you know you know rides in the back in, in the firefighter position, and so you're typically the group or division supervisor. You know, if you're you know, in on the fire, you'll be set up as you know as whatever division supervisor needs to be for suppression and. Um, but you know, I mean, the truth the truth is, um, with with leave time and the size of our department, uh, and and periodic vacancies, um, you know, while you do ride behind the captain, the captain does take off, so you 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 bump up, you move up as acting right. captain, and then the de- you know you're 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 a detail pull, you know, really you're you're not really a floater, but you become sort of a floater and you back gotcha. to other engines. So right. you you do spend some time riding in the back seat and the back step. Um, but you know, you're also still, you know, getting your time in as, as an officer and making decisions and right. you know, getting your experience. Yeah. It's, it's so, a different system. It's not one that's not many of us left. So I, w- I would imagine just at first glance that there's not a lot of people that stay a Lieutenant for a very long period of time. Um, Is that accurate? Because I, 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 I don't think I would love it. I didn't love it. That, right. Like I said, that was a stepping stone for me. I'm like, I want that next step. I want yeah. I want to be the captain. But so, you know, if you're at a truck company, yeah, they're staying lieutenants because they're they're truck lieutenant. And, and, uh, you know, oh, in the double riding. company system. Yeah. So, you know, if it's, if it's a double engine, lieutenant has his or her own engine. The captain has his or her own engine. Truck company, you know, the captain rides the engine and the lieutenant rides the truck. So it's the single engine companies uh, where, where the lieutenant rides behind the captain. Gotcha. There um, you go. Okay. But I think I think you know it's probably a fifty-fifty split. Some some people make lieutenant and they're just perfectly fine, you know, riding as the firefighter, you know, most days, and then acting up when the captain's off. But uh, that 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 gig wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, a transition plan. Mm-hmm. You sound like you're squared away now. You sound like you were pretty squared away then. What was in it? <laughs> You know, so, you know, when I first came in, I, 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 I was there, I knew I was different, right? I was vastly different than the, than, than some of the people that I worked with. And, you know, I, I love this. I love this job. I love this profession. And like I said, I love riding the medic as much as I love riding the engine. And there was, there was a lot of, you know, uh, banter around the fire station, you know, the us versus them, the morale issues. And I, I didn't see it. I loved it. I came in, I came in happy every day and couldn't get enough of this. In fact, I, you know, for the first couple of years, my captain said, you got to start taking vacation because you can't keep it all, you know, you have to take <laughs> off, you know? And I'm like, okay. And, and so I think, you know, early on, Michael, I, I didn't subscribe to that narrative, right? I didn't describe to the discourse and the negativity. And I, and I wanted, um, I wanted to be someone who came in and fostered an environment where people were happy to be there despite, you know, the apparatus condition, despite the engine bit, you know, the engine house condition, we have aging infrastructure, but just happy to be there, happy to serve and just to keep the, our eye on, 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 on the mission and why, you know, s- centered, why we came in, you know, what, what, what our purpose was, what our desire was. And so I was, you know, I was incentivized early to, to really, um, to, to arrive as someone in, in the organization who, um, you know, I mean, I held the guys and gals to, to, to the policy, to the letter of the law. Um, I believed in, in the rules and regulations and the guiding principles. Um, and I believed that they were there for a reason and they kept us safe and they kept us looking good and they kept us, you know, professional. And, 
And so I wanted to be the person that, you know, that arrived there and established that environment of, of uh, a shift of men and women who just, you know, we came in, we did our job, we were trained, we were professional, but we had fun, you know, and, and that's the environment that I always worked in. And I wanted to ensure that we had that moving forward. And, and the other thing was, you know, I mentioned earlier when I came in, there were very few females in leadership positions and, yeah. There was value to me in that. There was some unspoken value to be able to look across the engine bay floor and see, you know, another female in a leadership position who they weren't just captains. They were darn good firefighters. I mean, they were great fire ground officers. They were good firefighters. You know, um, the command presence was there. And so I just I, I knew I knew who I wanted to be when I got there. And so part of my plan was to arrive, you know, with with the confidence, not arrogance. Don't ever be cocky, right? You don't want to be cocky in this profession or you know what happens. Um, but just, you know, to be strategic about um, uh, embracing the people that I work with and embracing the community that I was serving. So part of my plan was always to just arrive and, and to be present, uh, to be approachable and, and to, you know, you know, be very, very specific about, you know, my expectations, um, but also support everybody to getting across the finish line. So I, I, I just I, I knew the type of leader that I, I wanted to be. Um, you know, I had studied the leaders before me. You know, you take pieces of the ones that you like and you throw away the pieces of the ones you don't like. And so over time and, and again, it was rapid uh, first five years. I'm like, I want to be part that part, that part, that none of that. Yes. Um, so, you know, it was all part of, you know, the transition plan is, you know, you, ha you know, you, you get one chance to, you know, I think to redefine yourself, right? You can be that, you can be the silly hanging out, you know, uh, blue shirt guy or gal who has fun. But when you step into the leadership role, you really have to define who and how you're going to be um, and, and draw those lines. And especially culturally, right? We have to, we have to be the adult in the room and, we have to be comfortable and confident doing that. And so that was part of my plan um, very early on. I, I knew who and how I wanted to be. Yeah, Rob spoke it at length about what that looked like during his uh, episode. I know that um, it can be very difficult, especially what your tenure as a firefighter look like or, or for whatever position you're promoting from and to. Um, but I've often said, as I, I realized for myself, if you don't change when you get promoted, you're not doing it right because people are going to change the way they, they treat you. So you're going you're gonna to have to make some changes. Now, you don't have to be someone different at, at your core. Hopefully, you're the same. But the, the way in which you act and interact will inevitably change. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, if you don't, if you don't change, you're not growing in the organization. You're not doing the job that you've been promoted to do, right? Because every level, right, every step you go up, your job changes. My job now mm -hmm. is vastly different than it was when I was an ops chief or a captain or a firefighter. And that's the expectation of the organization is that I evolve with that change. And so, you know, I don't think we change at our core. Um, and, the, you know, you always hear, don't forget where you came from. I I will never forget where I came from. Um, you know, I worked, you know, in, in, in the busy companies and, and did the job and I, and, and, I, and I participated all the way up, you know, um, but you do have to change your perspective changes because you have a different role in the organization. And if, if not, 
the organization is going to be in trouble if you don't start looking through a, a bit of a different lens and getting up on that balcony and surveying and and predicting and and for every change you make you know there is an unintended consequence and you have to be the person who sees that before everybody else so that your people stay safe 100 percent. give me uh if you could or if you will one thing that you're most uh that you most remember about that initial promotion, either a story or a feeling or an emotion or something, that first promotion? For a lieutenant? Yes. Or specialist? Lieutenant? Um, I remember, um, I mean, when I got the phone call from the fire chief at the time, I was so excited. And, um, you know, my father, uh, obviously, I looked up to my father. He was a state trooper. He was a sergeant in the state police. And I remember making that, that phone call back to dad and saying, hey, dad, you know, I got my first promotion and I'm a lieutenant now. And, and just really excited to share that news with him because I knew how proud he was of me. Um, and and that, that, that had tremendous value to me to be able to have my father be around to see, you know, to see my, um, my career start to blossom and take off. And so incredibly excited. Um, I remember just kind of like taking in the moment and then surreal, right? I'm like, God, this can't be real, right? I'm six <laughs> years on the job. I'm a lieutenant. And, um, and then, and then I did, I, I did a brief pause, right? I did a brief pause and a gut check and, you know, am, am, am I going to be okay? Am, am I going to be, you know, uh, all that I need to be for the men and women I serve? This is the, you know, it's a big job. It's, it's a big jump and, and, the, and the responsibility is tremendous. And so I did a little self-reflection and some gut check, you know, on the back end of that excitement. And, um, and just kept recalling what my captain said, which is if you think you're going to you know, know it all, you're going to be a 30 year backstep firefighter. And so, you know, just, um, now it was a, a great excitement, but there was also a bit of a, a, a pause of a gut check to say, all right, um, this is a big job. You're, you're responsible for all these other lives now besides just your own. And so, yeah, a little self-reflection, a little, uh, okay, well, let's, let's do this. You know, what was the biggest lesson that you remember learning for, for your first supervisory position that way? <laughs> Uh, the biggest transition was delegation, right? So uh, I still wanted to go in and fight that fire, and I had to really work to hold myself back. And 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 you know, the first couple of years, I called myself a yard gnome. Um, but <laughs> you know, I mean, to stand back and take command and and to take it all in um, and make sure that I was making good decisions. So you know, the the delegation was the hardest transition for me was to not be in there all the time. And then, like I said. Lieutenant, my department, one day I'm in there doing it. The next day I'm out in the lawn uh, commanding yeah. it. So um, so that that was the probably the most difficult part of the transition, you know. So at what point in your career does your formal education start or resume? Uh, what does that look like? Is it right yeah, about so, now? Or is it yeah, right about so I at was, this point? Yeah, no. So I um I always promised myself. So education. So when when we graduated high school, our our parents told us you can go to work or go in the military. And I was just not cut out for the military, um, especially not at 18 years old. Um, so I, I longed for a college education, and I and I promised myself when I made captain and I had the resources, I would go back to college. And so. Um, I made captain in 08 and then 2009, uh, uh, some guys I had worked with in police and fire had been through the Johns Hopkins. Uh, it was called the PELP program, police executive leadership program, but it was a cohort style every other Friday, Saturday, eight hour days uh, for two years for the undergrad accelerated um, uh, master's program, 11 months after that. 
Interesting. And so, yeah, so I joined this program. It was a combination police, fire, EMS folks in, in each of the cohorts. And uh, it, I, I can tell you, I, I have no idea now how I did it, right? So I worked full-time as a, as a as a captain in the fire department. I worked part-time at a local retirement community making some extra dough. Uh, I had to finish my AA degree concurrently with my undergrad because I had to have my AA to graduate. So I'm taking online classes at the community college to complete my AA, which I did simultaneously with my undergrad. And then (laughs) if that wasn't punishment enough, uh, the same semester I started my graduate program, I started EFL. So, um, you know, it's like, but you know, you're, you're on that run, right? You're in these intense research programs. And um, it, it was no better time. So, you know, I was in my mid-30s when I went back to school and finished my degrees. And again, you know, just tremendously proud of being able to accomplish that while balancing a full-time job and a part-time job at the time. And, uh, you know, again, having, you know, my parents be able to come and, and watch me, you know, take that walk across the stage at Hopkins twice. Um, you know, I was the first kid in my family and the only kid in my family to ever um, – to pursue a higher education. My, my oldest brother and I talk about it all the time and he's like, yeah, but you did it. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, um, I'm still paying for it. <laughs> did they go to the, mil- did, did they go to the military? Did they choose the other? Uh, so uh, my sister went in the military and she got hurt. So she's, uh, uh, she's no longer in the military. Uh, my one brother, I think he got in for a brief period of time and either he got hurt or he, it wasn't for him. And my oldest brother, he, uh, he, he went on to, he's a, uh, HVAC guy. He's in the geothermal and, and now he's oh, in yeah. sales because he's a bit older than me now. But uh, yeah, no, 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 no real career military people in this, in, in my sibling core. So. Interesting. So you got accepted into, you get promoted to captain. Mm-hmm. You're doing that. You are single company house. What's the, what's the, what's it look like? Where are you stationed? Oh, I'm stationed at Golden Ring, one one of the busier companies on the east side of Baltimore County. And um, so I had spent some time there as a fire specialist before I made lieutenant. And um, so I was uh, enamored to go back to this company. So it sits right at the intersection of the Baltimore Beltway and I-95. And it backs up to the city line and it goes up to the Hartford County line. And uh, so uh, extremely busy company. Um, great shift. I actually inherited a shift. Uh, most of them had 30 years when I got there. So I was the junior, I was the kid on the block and they would laugh. They would tease me because they made more than I did as a captain. And of course I'm laughing now, right? Because (laughs) they're retired and the rest is history. But, um, yeah, so busy company, um, just, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of highway calls, rescues, uh, substantial amount of fire and, you know, uh, in that area, um, you know, of course there's violent crime. There's, you know, your, your share of, uh, you know, of course, everybody now, unfortunately, is, is dealing a lot with the with the opioid crisis and the overdose. And so mm-hmm. just a very diverse community. We had uh, the CSX Amtrak Railways came through. So we were uh, with no strangers to train wrecks, um, derailments yeah. and, and running in the cars. We would have, you know, uh, vehicles struck on the tracks and just very, I mean, it, we, we have, you know, residential, single family uh, apartments, condos, highways industrial uh, facilities. So it's just, it was a really diverse community and really busy company. It's just, it was so much fun. I honestly had a hard time promoting out of there. Um, it was just so much fun. It's a beautiful thing to be in that yeah. type of a situation. Now, yeah, I, I was very I, fortunate. I need to go back because I, I, I totally missed uh, 
September 11th. What type of an impact did that have being in, in proximity to Pentagon? How close are you? What, what does it look like? Yeah, so geography? yeah, so DC is um, I mean, drive time about 45 minutes away from here. So south, I guess south southeast maybe. Um, so. I mean, I, I, I'm like anybody else, right? September 11th, I'll never forget it. I was, uh, I, so in Baltimore County, we worked two 10-hour days, two 14-hour nights, and all four days. And so I was, uh, before my first night work, I was downstairs in the basement of my house on the treadmill watching whatever nonsense show was on. And they started breaking in the news, uh, first with the, you know, New York City and the Twin Towers and just standing there, I mean, I'm, I'm walking. I didn't fall off the treadmill, but I'm walking on the treadmill and I'm just staring at the TV. I'm like, holy cow, what is going on? Like, I just had this like terrible sense that something was horribly wrong. Like this wasn't an accident and watching it unfold. And then I jump off the treadmill and then I see, you know, the plane hits, you know, in, in the Pentagon. And I'm like, oh my God, what's going on in this world? And phones start blowing up and start calling my colleagues. And um, so watching the news just glued to the tv all day long and then we went in for night work that night and we just sat around and it was just the most somber feeling to watch you know that the towers collapsed and the people scurry and it was like you know it was like the worst you know well it was the worst day right in the history of of, of, of this country and at least in my lifetime and um so, it, you, know, uh, we, you know, we mustered up like anybody else. Our special operations teams started to deploy to New York. And, uh, you know, we had contingencies of, of folks who went up and attended the memorial services that, you know, to make sure that there was representation. And um, I held back. I held back, you know, uh, local. Um, I didn't go up. I wasn't in special ops um, that early in my career. I, I did serve a little bit of time in special ops. And, uh but not at that point I hadn't, and uh, we, people were just going up in droves. But I was still, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a year, I'm a year out of the fire academy, and and I'm not real comfortable, you know, I'm I'm not real comfortable in the organization to, to to jump a bus full of guys and gals and go up and and and, and experience that. So I, I held back. Um, but um, certainly, you know, it, it again, you know, it kind of made you just pause. And but you know, the opposite of the devastation, right? To to the FDNY and, 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 and all the folks that, you know, uh, that were killed and, and the folks in Pennsylvania. And the opposite uh, had a profound uh, impact as well, which was the community support, right? We're sitting in the fire station in beautiful Parkville, Maryland, and people were coming in in droves. You know, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do, you know, cakes, cookies, you know, I mean, yeah, cards, the kids are coming in. I'm like, holy cow. Like, you know, like people really do, I mean, people care about us and, and in ways that I had never really, I guess, understood through my volunteer time in, in the jurisdiction where I grew up, it, it just hit me. It hit me that, you know, uh, I have to always be uh, the better person and, and take the high road and, and work 110% because this community loves us and we can never lose sight of that. And so... I think what really resonated with me through that experience was um, that we are public servants and we signed up for a life of service and the rewards of putting yourself in this position and, and taking on this role is one. I, I'm getting chills sitting here. I just, you know, um, you, you, you take it for granted until there's until there's a catastrophic event and then the community pours around you. 
and loves you in ways that you didn't know you could be loved um, by total strangers. And so, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, it just solidified for me that this was the profession that, that I had chose that I wanted to be in for the rest of my adult life or until I time out here. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, it was devastating. It was chilling, but it was the community support that really resonated with me um, that had a profound impact on sort of how I viewed my role and my responsibility as a public servant. So the, um, I was up in New York City last weekend. I was trying to figure out whether it was the weekend or weekend before. Either way, within the last 10 days. And to be at Ground Zero still evokes that emotion because we had gone in on the 13th. But uh, I know that the the Pentagon can is almost, unfortunately, an afterthought sometimes right, as compared yeah. to World Trade Center site. What type of an effect did the Pentagon have in, in emergency service in your region, if you, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there, I mean, I think, you know, the impact on us was, was the global impact. You know, it was the, the, the threat of, you know, of terror, not terrorism. Um, and it, it, it changed the way that we operated it changed it changed our comfort zone you know we we became um i guess more aware of our surroundings and so you know as a result of that you know there's a lot of funding that was uh, funding that was funneled in you know to sure. the metro region you know to the entire country but you know into the metro region and um you know we really started to enhance our, our emergency management and the funding sources and our hazmat and Special ops teams, you know, uh, we, we we received a lot of, of federal financial support for that, and we were able to grow as an organization that way. You know, personally, um, you know, I, I you know I, I visit D.C. about once a year, um, and probably have my whole life, starting out as a kid on field trips. Um, you know, D.C. has a lot of great exhibits, um, and and. Um, you know, I've been down there to the 9/11 uh, museum when they had it down there, and that was uh, it was. You know, again, it's one of those, you know, just just take pause and you think about it. And um, but, um, you know, beyond that, I don't have a I don't have a big connection with Washington, D.C. And, you know, in the Baltimore region or more the Baltimore metro region you, in D.C., you have more of the uh, the Washington cog and the, you know, the upper gotcha. northern Virginia, northern Virginia is sort of more impacted by that than we are. So. Gotcha. All right. So thanks for. For taking that step back in time, I just I wanted to get to it early, and, and we got off on a tangent. So let's get back. You get promoted to captain. You're getting your degree. At what point and by what uh, pathway does EFO become an idea and then eventually reality? What, what does that look like? How did that happen? Yeah, so you know, I, I um, so at having the benefit of working at the National Fire Academy um, and having gone back there several times for some courses. You know, I was I was you know wrapping up my um, bachelor's degree. I knew I wanted to be a chief officer uh, in the organization. By that point, um, I knew that I wasn't going to stop at captain, and I was already in this groove. You know, uh, like I said, the research groove and 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 writing you know papers and research papers. And so um, the next logical step for me was then to get the EFO credential. Um, I was going to finish my higher education as far as I was going to go. Um, I don't. 
I don't have the drive anymore. I don't, you know, PhD, you know, hey, Rob, good for you. <laughs> I don't know if I have that left in my tank. Um, but I definitely wanted the, you know, the, to, to work on the EFO designation. There was only at the time, I think, two people in my organization who had ever gotten it. Um, so it was something that wasn't um, pursued very much. But I just, I, I just love the National Fire Academy. And I think so highly of the experience and, you know, the networking and, and um, that the people that go through and, and take that program are truly the best of the best um, in, in the industry. And um, I just thought, you know, and, and look, and, and Emmitsburg's in my backyard. You know, I'm, I'm 45 minutes from Emmitsburg. And yeah. so it's foolish for me not to take, you know, at that point in my career, it's foolish me for me not to take that, that, that leap and that step and getting that credential and experience and, and doing some work there. So I was already in the groove. And, uh, you know, I'm a glutton for punishment in my 30s. So so uh, forgive yeah. me if, if I uh, messed up the timeline, but you attended there as a student before you got the job or you got the, the job where you were working there before you were ever a student? So I worked there as a contract security person, did the security and EMS for the National Fire Academy. So I worked there until I got hired in Baltimore County. Right, that's what I and then I went back there. Yeah, I went back there and actually worked part-time for a while. And then I got tired of working so much. Um, and uh, so then I you know, started taking courses, you know, the multi-alarm, instant command multi-alarm and some of the other courses uh, that they had to offer. And just love the atmosphere as a student there. What was your favorite class besides the EFO? Um, assuming that EFO was your favorite program. Yeah, assume, assume, assume. Um, you know, I really do. I I think that you know one of the uh, you know I took like the you know the training program manager course when I was in, in the chief of training and yeah, and that was decent and it, it was a lot of uh it was great because it was kind of like a reunion. It was myself and and, and Patrick Weinman and um. Oh my goodness! I'm gonna I, I start saying names, but I'm gonna forget people. But uh, it was kind of like a it was kind of like a reunion of sorts. But I think the best class I ever took really was the uh, multi alarm, you know, uh, for company officer multi alarm for company officers because I was a new officer when I took that, and I just found tremendous value in that. And um, and you know, again, it just reinforced reinforced the incident command structure and um, you know, giving you know additional layer of, of confidence and um, it was it was a lot of fun. I think at the time it was a, I feel like it was a two week course. But you know, any any two weeks or any week away at the National Fire Academy, I mean, it's just you know, it's a it's a great experience. Yeah, yeah. I was having this conversation last week with a, a colleague. There's such a difference between a, a two day, six day, and a ten day. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't know how many more ten days they have. But my first experience at, at NFA was a ten day, and I'm so glad. That it was. You definitely get tired by Tuesday or Wednesday the following week. Second week, you're like, okay, yeah, time for me to go home. But staying over that weekend and either knocking around on campus or going into D.C. or Baltimore, wherever, you know, really bonding as a group, um, it it really does make a a big difference. I just got an email. just triggered my memory. I got an email from a colleague from New Jersey this past week. He, I helped him for a promotion. He got promoted in the neighboring department. And he's at a point now where he emailed me. He listened to one of the episodes <clears throat> and was asking me about the National Fire Academy. He's, he's ready. You know, it, it's so it's so interesting because it it's, what's the word? I don't want to say coming of age, but it, it is, a, you graduate to 
the National Fire Academy feel, feels very much like. Right? There, there's people that have and people that, that haven't, unfortunately. And not that the people that, that, that haven't aren't professional. It's certainly not what I'm saying at all. But when you go there, you never leave this, the same person. No, you don't. And I, you know, and, and like I said, it's right in our backyard and it's an under, underutilized resource for us as well. And I'm constantly encouraging people to, to go up there. And especially when we do promotions for lieutenants or captains or, or chief level officers, I'm like, you guys got to go up there and experience this, right? You got to at least take a six day and, and go up and experience it. But, and, and, and the beauty of it is, you know, like you go, first of all, I mean, the relationships that you form, right? I mean, you yeah. guys, you know, all too well, um, you know, you had this instant Rolodex of people around the country um, that you can call on and bounce ideas off of and, and get resources. And, and uh, you know, but I always felt like, again, that, that recharged my batteries. I'd go up there and I would talk to folks and I would talk to folks from departments across the country who didn't have the four person minimum staffing or, you know, they had, you know what I mean? They, 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 you know, yeah. they, they had, 30 people in their organization and I have a thousand and, and they, you know, their, their fire engines are 20 years old and we're replacing ours every 10 years or, you know, what's, you know, what's happening. And I'm, and I go back and I'm like, guys, we have it so good yeah. where we are. You know, there's people out there providing this service with far less resources, far less staffing, getting paid far less money, you know, with far less benefits. Um, you know, we, we really, it really does. It puts things in perspective when you realize that, you know, there's places around this country that do the same job that you and I do um, with far less. And so we, we always called it getting them out of the bubble. You know, I think and that was the importance of training for me in our department was getting them outside of the organization, because until you get outside of that, you don't realize how how good you have it. And, and B, you don't realize where you need to make improvements within the organization. And uh, we always refer to it as, yeah, we, we need to get you out of the bubble. Um, yeah, so you right. can see what the, what the world looks like um, put things back in perspective. You know, and it's such a good point that you make there. I, I hadn't thought about that perspective in a long time and, until you mentioned it. And it brought back such a, a visceral response in me that, you would go back, sure, you having learned something academically, but really you, you came back with a renewed perspective on perhaps there was something in your department that was bothering you, perhaps there were many things, and then you really come back and go, is this really a big deal you know, compared to what some other people have? Um, so if, for people that are listening, like uh, my good friend, and you know who you are, uh, there are a lot of things that you're going to learn at the National Fire Academy that have nothing to do with curriculum. I'm actually kind of surprised that Baltimore County only had two EFOs, especially being in yeah. such close proximity. Yeah, at the time it was. It was just two of them. I was the third, and I think we are up to five now. I mean, it's still, um, <laughs> you know, not not a lot of takers on it. And it's, it's unfortunate mm -hmm. because, you know, there's just such value. That program has such tremendous value. Um, all of the courses there do. I mean, we're just really fortunate. I mean, in, as far as, you know, we have some really great leadership and we did back then under Dr. O'Neill and Dr. Kirby, and we have it again, you know, now under, you know, um, uh, Eric Gablix up there. And then of course, you know, Tanya Hoover's still with us and, and Lori's the, you know, I mean, we just have a tremendous team yeah. of, 
you know, just <laughs> well-rounded professionals running that, that, that facility and, and, and U.S. Fire Administration were just so fortunate, you know. So you started EFO when? 2011? Uh, 2011, yes. Yep. So we, we started at the same time. So we, we were probably on campus at the same time in those four years, that I would imagine. I'm sure we were, yeah. And I think we gapped a year for some reason because I think I actually finished in 15. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it was 14, but I thought it was 15. But I feel like we, we gapped a year for some reason and we got kind of skipped um, in the in the curriculum. But that was okay. I mean, you know. <laughs> okay. So, Jen, what type of an EFO were you? Did you go through uh, as a cohort or did you make 25 new friends each, each time you went? I was one of those people that very few repeat people on my my pathway through what uh what says you about that yeah so when i when i joined as well that they they um discouraged any kind of cohort so for the most part every class i had uh we had you know uh, brand new people but there was a couple of us that just kept resurfacing in the same class and it was so it was kind of fun you know to have the have the classes with a few people that you were familiar with but you know there's there's great value and and 25 new every time you know you went through, well, I shouldn't say you went through, you started as a captain. Mm -hmm. Was that, because I did the same, I started as a captain, was that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, did it make you feel uncomfortable being a company officer going through there with all, a lot of chief officers? But Intimidating is the word I'm looking for. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, you get to that level um, with, with that group of folks, you know, and, and I think everybody embraces each other. And uh, I had aspirations to, you know, to become a chief and I was on the chief's list. So, um, okay. yeah, I think I, I think I started in 11, right? Did I start in 11? Yeah, I think I did. And then uh, I was promoted to chief in 12. So, you know, everybody that I went through with were just a great group of guys and gals and really, you know, embraced. And no, nobody ever, uh, you know intimidated me or I never felt um, that way. I, I knew, um, you know, that I was amongst a bunch of professionals and, uh, if, if, if nothing else, they actually encouraged me, um, to go ahead and take that chief's promotion. So I never felt any kind of way like that. That's really a, a really professional, uh, atmosphere when you go up there. Yeah, no, for me, yeah, I, I felt very much like, uh, I was asking myself, did I belong here? Not that I was intimidated hmm. by others, but it just, I remember that feeling going in there and everybody was in that, that first day of, of ED and everybody's given their background, their bio. And it was kind of like, yeah, I'm not quite there yet. I haven't quite <laughs> arrived. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree. Uh, you know, I, I went as a, a Lieutenant and I will say that uh, I, I was intimidated, right? Because I'm sitting with a group of, for all intents and purposes, chief officers. And, and I was still just a young company officer, but Jen, I want to just echo what you said. And that is nobody ever made you feel like you didn't belong or you shouldn't be there. I mean, there was never that arrogance. Um, it, it, everybody was always welcoming and, um, uh, I loved it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I mean, other than introductions, like, like Michael said, I, I just, I don't remember anybody ever really fixating on rank. Mm -hmm. um, it was more about, you know, the value that we brought 
you know, as individuals. And I, I just really feel like, you know, we just, I don't know. And, and for every, every class I had, I just, you know, just, we just really clicked. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I, you know, I don't know what it is about that atmosphere other than I think, you know, that people that pursue, you know, the opportunity to go to the National Fire Academy, they're serious about their investment and their education in this profession. And so it, it was just that, a lot of fun. That much is true. There are people, uh, the vast majority of people that attend are very serious about being there. I agree. What was your favorite year? Um, community risk reduction, actually, uh, because, um, I mean, I felt like ED and EL really built on what I had just finished at Hopkins, right? Because I was in an executive leadership program there, a management curriculum. So a lot of that felt um, like not redundant, but that it just built on the foundation I already worked on. But um, I really had a passion for, you know, again, I was a captain in a, in a, in a jurisdiction that was really busy and um, some major highways that ran through that district and just had a lot, a tremendous amount of pedestrians getting hit by cars. And so I, you know, I, I knew going into that, that was something that I wanted to target. And so it just made that, you know, it made that year enjoyable um, going out, you know, to Hagerstown, to the Children's Village, the Safety Village, and seeing that and then coming back and being able to put to put that that project to work in my own organization, develop a, a pedestrian safety campaign. And so um, that was a lot of fun for me. I, I, it just, just was something that I hadn't done really focused on before. I mean, I was a specialist. I did PFSEs, and but um, that that to me was just a lot of fun. And it really, again, it was one of those facets of the of the profession that you know you realize that you have uh, a lot of impact in, in that realm if you you know get the support that you need um, to build programs and preventable death and injuries. Just you know something that we should, in my opinion, spend more time on. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded, Nedgement, uh, same for me, year two, Eker risk reduction was my favorite year. And that's, as we say, that's because that's where I met Rob. So, of course, it's my favorite year. <laughs> I'm a little hurt year four wasn't your favorite, Jim, but I'll I'll move past it. I'm a bigger yeah, man. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I'll send you some <laughs> issues, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded as you're talking that uh, Baltimore County has, at the time, had a big uh, Orthodox Jewish population. They have their own EMS system down there. Is that still in uh, in service? Yeah, they are. They're actually based just inside the city. Um, so the, the area is Pikesville. Um, so Pikesville is in Baltimore County, but just inside the city um, is the, oh gosh, and the name just Hatsala. escapes me. Hatsala, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, as far as I know, they're still active and um, back when they started up, um, you know, in Baltimore County, um, um, helped to affiliate them and train them. Yeah, it seems like there's a uh, more of a cooperative effort in Baltimore County. There was more less cooperative uh, where I was in, in Clifton. So uh, that that really was the big change for me in my EFO experience was reaching out to a community that really no one was reaching out to developing those relationships. And uh, uh, yeah, I just remember that. I met a gentleman, I don't know if I can remember his name, but I could see his face and he was from that area down by you. Yeah. So what what was your biggest takeaway that you remember from, from the EFO 
experience personally and professionally. Aside from Mary Marchone and the jam, the, the jar of jelly, <laughs> protected jelly. <laughs> I still uh, have Mary. that. I still have I that jar. I do too. And I figure one day if I get a bad storm here, I might need it, you know, to survive. But, uh, you know, Mary, Mary was, uh, gosh, such a, just a, a wonderful human. Right. And so Agreed. she made, she made the, the, the program, uh, interesting. And, and she, you know, she had a way of, of making you embrace community risk reduction so much so that I actually went back and I taught, uh, community risk reduction for company officers uh, a few years later. Um, so um, I think, you know, again, I, I go back to that experience of uh, going up to the, to, to the safety village and, and really thinking how cool it would be to have a, have a regional facility like that, that we were able to get to, you know, our, our younger generations, our younger folks when they're most impressionable and start um, reinforcing, you know, the safety messaging and, I just, you know, there's just, again, I think there's just tremendous value in 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 being a part of engineering preventable or pre the prevention of, 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 of injuries and death. Um, you know, we're just such, I mean, and, and by virtue of our, our profession and our funding sources and our resources, we're so reactive, you know, we're response driven and to take a half step back and realize how much more we can do uh, with the proper funding and support um you know to to build resilient communities and i think that's at the end of the day right that's what we want we don't want to run fire calls and we don't want to run crashes we don't want to see our communities hurting um and and had that that devastation and so uh i think you know just from a personal perspective i just, I just thought it was something i hadn't really uh focused on a lot in my career i was i was more of an operations person a response person and um so it just gave me a different perspective. I think that's the value of, of higher education in general is opening your mind and your heart to, to different things that you hadn't availed yourself to before. That's, that's the whole essence of growth, you know? Agreed. Agreed. The, uh, Rob, what, what did you say your favorite year was? Yeah. Now I'm going to make you choose. <laughs> uh, it was actually year four. Um, yeah. Is, was my favorite. Yeah. Um, I mostly due to the subject matter. Um, I really have always liked executive development, executive leadership, not that uh, community risk reduction. I found that very interesting, but if I had to choose my favorite, it, it was year four. And it was because of Patrick. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Now, were you, I, I guess you should have asked, were you sitting at the same table together or were you just in the same class? I don't remember the seating arrangements, I, I, but I feel like we mingled a lot, too. And, and you know, and, and that guy, Patrick, that we talk about, you know, it was a lot of uh, fun in with the iPhone. And, you know, um, I, I feel it, like you know, we, we had our assigned tables, but we, we mingled a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and, and maybe that might be why I liked your four. It seemed like as a as a class as a whole, we hung out more together than than the other three years for me. I mean, uh, I mean, we did year two. We, we wound up going to a, a Baltimore Orioles game and that was a lot of fun. I think we did that over the, the weekend, didn't we, Mike? We did. Yeah. Um, but when I almost got myself into trouble with my dark cheater shirt. Uh, yeah, yeah. I thought I thought we were going to jail. 
walks into a Baltimore Orioles game with a Yankees t-shirt on and uh, really uh, made a couple fans very irate. <laughs> well, it could only have been a couple, right? Because if you go to a Baltimore Orioles game, the Yankees are in town. It's all Yankees fans because our tickets are cheap. Yeah, yeah no, no they weren't playing the Yankees that weekend. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, maybe that's your best choice there, but whatever, you know. Exactly. Yeah, we forgive. So, we forgive and forget. So after EFO, you got promoted in in your second year. You got promoted to your first chief because you've been promoted several times as a chief officer. Yeah. First battalion promotion, chief. battalion chief operations. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what type of uh, what type of a transition is that? for you i mean you talked about being the the yard gnome before now that that's it for you now right i mean yeah you know actually i think that was the single um biggest transition that i faced um you know in our organization you know we there was three of us promoted to battalion chief at the same time and they gave us uh keys to the car and a radio and a pager and a cell phone and said go get them kids and uh and off we went. And so, you know, um, you know our chiefs and, and still to this day uh, do a lot of the uh, of the uh, heavy lifting administrative work. And the captains still run the house and run the calls. Of course, the chiefs run rescues and fireboxes. And, uh, but you shift to such an administrative role so quickly and with very little oversight and guidance, right? There's no, for us, there's no playbook. You, you become a battalion chief and you figure it out and uh, you have, uh, you know, you have your deputy chief to, to lean on and uh, the other battalion chief. We only have three battalions in the, in the jurisdiction our size. And so. Three um, battalions in 600 square miles? Yeah, We had six wow. before I came in and we're, we were, we had three when I, well, there were six before I came in, but I, I've only ever known three battalions. So yeah, three battalions. So it's you, another battalion chief and your deputy chief. And, um, so I had, a, you know, again, I went back to the west side. I had a huge area to learn, um, a whole bunch of new people. But it was like, I mean, as intimidating as it was at first, right? Uh, and again, you know, again, next level of responsibility. Holy wow, now I'm responsible for hundreds of lives, um, not just, you know, 10 on my shift. So, um, you know, so I go over there and it's 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 like a whole new fire department. I, I'm on a shift in a battalion that I have never been on in my entire career. And I had to meet new people. Like I had, didn't know who they were and they didn't know who I was. <laughs> um, so it was kind of fun in a way um, to get to know, you know, a whole new uh, group of folks. Uh, busy, busy. Uh, the West side is, is super busy, uh, busier than the East side and the central battalion. And if anybody listens to me, they'll, probably chastise me for saying that, but it's true. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's just vastly different on the West side of our, of our, of our County. So, um, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, I felt like, you know, and I just, I just, we just promoted to two new bureau chiefs uh, last week. And I said, look, you know, it's going to take you 12 months, maybe 18 months to get comfortable in your new role. It's a lot to learn. And, um, you know, a lot of it, you, you, you learn as you go, you know, it's that continuing to learn, as you go and 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 because you don't get every scenario every time i mean the fires are the fires the rescues are the rescues but the administrative part of this job is what's difficult right it's 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 a new perspective um on how you have to protect the organization and protect the employees and protect 
the, the citizens you serve. And you have to be able to look through every situation and synthesize that information and make the best decision for all three of those groups um, with one decision. And that's something that uh, no fire officer, I don't think, any fire officer, of course, teaches you to do. Um, I think there's value in the – yeah, go ahead. That was an interesting way you put that. You're making a decision for, for three groups with one decision. I like how you said right. that. Yeah, I mean, and that's I think that that's where you start to really um, change your perspective. Um, not now again, like we talked earlier, not change who you are, but change the decisions you make because it impacts more than just yourself, more than just your engine company. It you know it, it has implications far-reaching, um, and every decision you make, like I said earlier. Somewhere in there could be an unintentional consequence. You know, something you didn't see was going to happen as an outcome to a decision you made. And so you don't get trained for that in, in this job, at least not in my department. I don't know if you guys did in your departments, but you, you just you don't we don't get trained for that. And so you you have to sort of, you know, do a little little trial by fire. Um and, and, and as you ascend. And so that was, I would say, hands down, the most difficult transition of my career was going from captain to battalion chief, um, only because it really is a vastly different job. Um, we, you know, we act as battalion chiefs in my organization. And for me, that was fun. It was like going in and figuring out what station I was going to go to that night to have dinner, you know, it was yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, shopping for a meal. But um, anyway, you still were responsible for do the work, but you didn't actually, you, you weren't the chief uh, until you were the chief. So now yeah. is the department still doing the tens and 14s? Yes, we do. Still. Okay. Yep. Still. I think we're the only ones left doing it. So Jen, yeah, is, we, a, is the shift run by a deputy chief then? So, yeah. So it's kind of crazy. So there's three battalions. And the first mm -hmm. battalion is, a, is the deputy chief's battalion. So the deputy chiefs run their battalion, but they're also responsible for the oversight of the BCs east and west of them. Okay. So. And that model has changed a little bit from time to time. Uh, you know, earlier in my career, there was a deputy per shift. It wasn't necessarily which which battalion they were assigned to. It was like one per shift. And but um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, we are. You know, we we have a lot of area to cover uh, with few chiefs on duty. And uh, actually worked uh, operations last Sunday. It was so much fun. One of our chiefs is off uh, long term, um, and so I was able to cover a shift for him, and it was it was great fun. Uh, to go back out there and do that job again. It is fun to go back, isn't it? It is. And it's so important, you know, it's so important to, you know, to stay connected with the field and to keep your finger on the pulse, but also to to live a day in the life of, of, of your BCs and your DCs, right? Like you're, you're, you, once you go up that level and you spend, again, I'm six years as an AC, and prior to that I spent two years in training. So, you know, I'm eight years removed from everyday field operations and we've enacted a lot of changes in our organization. And so to go back out and experience what a current battalion chief or deputy chief does in the course of his or her day, it's tremendous value. Um, and again, I felt refreshed when I woke up on Monday morning, having worked in that shift on, on Sunday. Yeah. The reason why I asked about the shift, we used to work two tens day off, two nights, three off. So hmm. similar, but without the day in between, but 
I never worked it as a chief. I worked as a firefighter, then we went to 24-hour shift. But I remember the impression that was left on me as a firefighter working that shift, that if you didn't get it done, because you were talking about heavy administrative work, if you didn't get it done on the first day, you had the next day to, to get it done. But then you have four days where if it doesn't get done, it's not going to get done for almost a week. Um, so what are some of the administrative responsibilities that you remember being the most cumbersome for battalion chief? So, you know, and when the command staff is small as ours, not only were we battalion chiefs, but we also had ancillary duties. So I was also uh, had oversight of uh, community risk reduction and PIO oh. functions and wow. responsible for doing that. That We had a monthly uh, show we taped at the Comcast studio and I was the, you know, I was the host for that, and so you had all these all these additional duties um, in addition to running your battalion. And so, but I think, you know, the thing that with the two two and four schedule, you sprinkle in some vacation time and some other factors, uh, getting an investigation done timely, right? Whether it's an accident investigation or a personnel yeah. issue and disciplinary, you know, we always talk about like you like you don't want to you know you don't want to you know punish your child three weeks after you know he did wrong. Um, but you find yourself in that situation when you're in this shift yeah. configuration that by virtue of whether it's my leave time, their leave time, or just those four days off, um, it takes such a long time to do an investigation. So it never really feels timely. And right. that was hard to get used to because as a captain, you know, if I had an investigation or I had an issue on my shift, I could wrap it up in a, in a day or two because I was right there in the house with my people and, um, so that was a, that was a difficult leap, you know, to try to figure out how to navigate that, and you know, because look, nobody, you know, we we all come to work or we all wake up every day and and, and we want to do well, right? Nobody wants to go to work and be told that they they messed up or you know they you know they didn't live up to the expectation, and so I take that kind of stuff seriously, um, you know, that we're that we're you know prompt and efficient and we're forthright and. Uh, you know, we have the hard conversations when they have to be had, um, you know, be very open and transparent with people. Um, and so that was difficult for me to wrap my head around how to do that um, and be effective and be compassionate and empathetic, um, you know, because I do believe that, you know, good people make bad mistakes sometimes. And, and it, you know, you take early course correction um, so that people can be successful because we all want to come to work and do a good job. So. I agree with that 100%. The, the ability to act correctly but swiftly seldom coexists. Right. You know, it's, it's a difficult uh, dynamic to, to, uh, to deal with. The, how long were you a battalion chief? So I was in the battalion, um, I guess, two years. Um, and then, uh, I actually hurt, my, I tore a tendon in my elbow doing our annual operational readiness training, right? Cause I'm a person, I'm going to go do everything that the guys and gals are going to do. And so I go down and do my operational readiness training and I have a little tweak in my arm and I and lo and behold, tear this little ligament or whatever tendon in my elbow. And so they, like the clinic, the, the employee health services, 
put me on modified duty. I'm like, are you kidding me? Modified duty. I'm a chief. I carry a lapel mic and a dry erase pen. Are you, <laughs> what can I do? You know, what, what, why do I have to go sit at a desk? And so I was on modified duty. And I was terribly, terribly embarrassed by this, this injury that I had, you know, doing readiness training and, and um, it wasn't long and I, I took a week off and I went and taught at the National Fire Academy, CRR, uh, had a wonderful class, a wonderful time. And I came back from that and the two assistant chiefs at the time walked in my office and said, hey, um, we're going to move you down to the training academy. And I said, oh, OK, cool. Uh, what am I doing down there? And they said, uh, running training. Yeah. We wait, made a wait a minute, we, what? We made a decision while you were gone. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, you know, for how long? And they said, until we tell you you're not there anymore. And I'm like, okay, cool. Should I pack my office? And they said, absolutely pack your office. So uh, I came home that night and I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, Jenna, I'm going to run training. And she's like, what? <laughs> what do you know about running training? And I said, I don't know, but I guess I'll figure it out. And uh, I got to tell you guys, that was the best the best thing that ever happened in my career. Um, I didn't ask for it, but I embraced it. Um, and it just was uh, such an amazing experience being the training chief and uh, just so much to learn uh, about, you know, and such an important role in the organization, you know, from recruit training to, you know, to continuing ed and proficiency training. And it's just, it was such, it was awesome. It was, I, I, I gotta say, it was probably the highlight of my career thus far. So wow, before we great. dive into before we dive into the training assignment, I'm a military person, so I know what an ORE is in the military. What is an ORE in the fire department? Oh, it's ORT, Operational Readiness Training. So every year, as part of our physical fitness uh, evaluation, we have to submit you know our our medical physical by our doctor, yeah. and then we go down and we basically do we do the um, it's it's like the uh, PAT test. It's the uh, CPAT. Yeah, like the CPAT, but but it's not CPAT. We actually do a, a an agility test where you know you yeah drag a tire up and back, climb a wall, uh, really? drag hose line, drag, take a knee, hand over hand, uh, take a high rise pack up, uh, do some push pull exercises, climb the tower. So yeah, so it's it's it, and it's the same it's the same exact um, exam that we give our new hires. So basically, you know, we're validating you. the test every year, and uh, it's timed <clears> and <throat> it's it's a personal thing. And then you know year over year uh, what your what your measure is and 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 where you can improve. And now what do we you have, do if you don't pass it? Well, you don't fail it, right? So the only way to fail it is to refuse to do it. So if it takes me ten minutes to do it this year, then then I know I need to work on my stamina. And uh, we have peer fitness trainers and, and now the peer fitness trainers actually go with us and they shadow us as we go through the course. And if they, if we have any struggles or we, you know, we have some, you know, deficiencies that they're right there um, to help, to help correct, uh, you know, mechanics or talk to us offline about, you know, ways to, to enhance our physical fitness and get us back up with our cardio and our strength. And so it's not punitive whatsoever. Um, it's it's part of a it's it's really it's 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 proctored it's timed but it's a self assessment it's it's a self review of where you are um, physically uh, with your health and 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 your ability to do the job um, and the various aspects of the job so yeah so that's part of our annual our fitness uh, exam that's awesome I would imagine that's got to be a pretty tremendous source of pride for people like yourself to go down there and and make a showing. 
Yeah, no, I, I do. I, I embrace the opportunity to go down, and I typically, you know, go down with other chiefs to support them because, you know, all the chiefs go down and they go through it too, just like every other member. And so, um, you know, and I, you know, I have to eat, eat, a, eat a little, a little less apple pie, a little more humble pie sometimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, you know, um, you know, I'm like anybody else. I go up and down and on the on the scale myself. And so, uh, it is a good. <laughs> It's a good self-assessment and be like, ooh, you know, it's time. Awesome. So the uh, the the peer fitness trainers that you you have are they a part of the training division that you were commanding? How does that work? No, they're actually uh, all members of the field operations, and um, they went through the IFF peer fitness training curriculum several years ago, and they get recertified every two years. And uh, they, as part of their just uh, normal course of their duties, uh, can be called on to, uh, you know, help PT with the recruits, or they can be called to a station. You can uh, ask them to be your, you know, your your peer fitness guide uh, throughout your career, and then they, um, you know, they get a little extra uh, stipend in their pay for being peer fitness trainers. So, right. uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a good program. It's you know, and it. You know the folks that are peer fitness trainers are just they're so outgoing and personable, and they they just really care about people improving their health. It's, it's non-judgmental. You know, you never have that sort of dynamic. It's having your own personal trainer in the firehouse. Is is uh, PT mandatory in, in the department, or is it? No, is it we have a. No, it's it's voluntary. There's a there's an annual test that we have to do. We have to do a one one and a half mile uh, run walk, uh, planks, um, push ups. I think oh. that's it. Maybe there's something else. But again, those are self assessed at the company level and recorded, and they're used as personal benchmarks. So it's a it's a not it. And look, prior, I mean, that, that we've only had that program maybe uh, maybe a decade. Uh, prior to that, there were no no requirements for annual physicals, no requirement for any kind of PT assessment. Um, so, you know, and, and at the same time, um, the department adopted a, uh, uh, for all new hires, uh, uh, no tobacco use. And for current members, no tobacco use in the fire stations or on the fire department property. So if you're going to chew or smoke, you got to find a place to do it, but not in the fire station. So. It's a, uh, you know, it's it's developed, you know, it's it's it's, it's um, designed to over time, of course, make sure that the entire workforce will be abstinent from tobacco use and hopefully be a little healthier. Is that a kind of a joint labor management initiative, or was that something that was there a, a, an event that caused the change? What was the what was the impetus yeah, behind no, moving this No, it this was uh, it was a joint joint management and 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 union uh, initiative to start improving the health of the organization. Good. Yeah, it's awesome. So you go into training. How big is your training de- department, division, bureau? What do you what do you call it? <laughs> uh, you can call it whatever you want. Training division, training bureau. So um, what did you call it? I call it the training division. Fire Rescue Academy is what we call it. Fire Rescue Academy. Okay. So I gotcha. was I was one of ten people assigned to the entire training division. So um, for an organization our size, uh, you might imagine woefully understaffed, and it's been that way for a long time. So incredibly dedicated group of men and women who commit to being in the training academy. And then uh, while I was there, that's when we came up with the, with the concept of enhancing 
during recruit training programs, bringing in the recruit training cadre, five additional people, train them this, you know, to the skills uh, level, and then bring them down and use them to enhance, uh, you know, our instructors. And then, you know, on burn days, live burn days, you know, we we uh, detail engines down to support, and those folks, um, you know, we strategically place, you know, burn techs and and certified instructors on those engines and bring them down to help enhance and augment the training staff. So, you know, when we have a fire fire training class in, it's it's all hands and and the and the department is mobilized to come down and, and make make the magic happen. This was your first staff assignment? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh five five eights, four tens, what that look like? Uh I was five eights, um, but her, in reality, I was about five twelves. Uh, you know, I was look. I'm the person that's going to be there before before everybody else, and the last one to leave. You know, I've I've always right. been that way, and and uh and I took this role again. I I was blindsided uh, when I was put in this position, um, but you know, I I embraced it. I embraced everything that I do, um, and so I saw it as an opportunity and and one that I really wanted to be. Uh, you know, uh, I just wanted to be all in. So I would be at the academy 5.36 in the morning, and I, I wouldn't leave till at least 6 o'clock at night. So yeah. my, my staff hours were, it was, you know, was, was 5 8, but I, you know, you just. Sure. Yeah. You know. No, really, really just looking for uh, what the change from shift. Yeah. Um, I found. <laughs> yeah. I got changed. I got assigned to training when I got promoted to captain and our department, obviously different structure, different size, different, a lot of things. Um, but the staff assignments was Lieutenant in charge of a company, captain in charge of a house, uh, deputy chief in charge of the shift. And the, at the time, the two staff positions, which were Monday through Friday were captain positions. There was no, well, the, the office, Staff chief was gone and back and gone and back and, and who knows what that looked like. But there were definitely plenty of people that did not take it, the promotion to captain. They would stay a lieutenant because they didn't want to be put in the office in one of the staff positions. Mm-hmm. So I got promoted and was put in part in charge of training division, division of one. <laughs> uh, so I can definitely uh, empathize and relate to, you know, being under understaffed. Um, but it was, it was challenging, but I would imagine if, if you had a similar experience to, to what I had, that you got to see the department work in a way that you would not normally get to see the department work when you're on shift. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, when I reflect, um, the value in that was, it, it opened my eyes to a lot of processes that I didn't I didn't avail myself to over over the course by just being an ops person and um so it was the first time in my career that I actually had an operating budget and I had to manage that budget and obviously the majority of that was salary I could do nothing with but I did you know have the uh, small amount of uh, discretionary funds that I could use to support the operation um you know we have in Maryland it's called the Council of Academies and so all, all 23 counties get together in the city of Baltimore once a month, and, and our state uh, 
um, Fire Rescue uh, Institute and our Maryland Emergency Medical Institute comes together and we have a monthly meeting and we talk about all things training and education in the state and how we intersect and what's going on. So really, I mean, there was a lot, you know, and then of course, you know, you learn a lot, a whole lot more about personnel uh, matters and personnel law when yeah. you're dealing with new employees and, and you're trying to work through, you know, challenges of training and education and making sure that people are successful. So, you know, it was something that was just really, you know, the, the value, like I said, it was the most valuable opportunity. And I, and I had, and I had resisted that, you know, in my career. Um, and, and again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I resisted leaving field operations. I wanted to be a field person. I wanted to run calls. And I had the opportunity early on in my career to go down and, and, and to be a, an adjunct instructor for a class. And I was like, nah, no, thank you. I had the credentials to be promoted to lieutenant far before I did to go in, into fire prevention, but I didn't want to do that. And so I was hold, I was the holdout, right? I was the holdout that didn't yeah. want to go do that. But now I tell people, you know, avail yourself to every opportunity. Spend some time in training. Spend some time in prevention. Spend some time in communications. You know, a safety division. What, whatever, whatever intrigues you the most about the department, because you'll just you you build your portfolio and and you just really enhance your understanding of how the organization operates when you get out of just the response mode. What was <clears throat> Excuse me. What was the the biggest aha moment that you remember having in training to to kind of emphasize the point we were just making? Um. So you know, I when I went down there, um, it was a surprise to the staff that was there. The chief that was there was was being moved out, and I was being moved in. And so it was a challenge to start with um, to build the trust, and and I had to rebuild part of my team. But the reason I went down there uh, was they wanted a fresh perspective and, and they wanted uh, the recruits to be successful and they, they expected expected that. And so I think, you know, in doing that, I had taken, you know, some of my studies from, from EFO and, you know, from EL and from my Hopkins, you know, education and just sat everybody down and, and, and we had a, did a case study and, and how we how we conducted ourselves, you know, we assimilated to, to what we were exposed to when we were recruits, right? Which was the paramilitary DI kind of folks. Um, and, and, and we had evolved from that and, and I had an expectation for success. And so, um, I, I think, you know, be, being able to quickly build a team, a new team down there and to get them to subscribe, uh, to the mentality that we were there and our success was based on the recruit success, um, I had four classes uh, under my command down there, and two of them graduated 100%, and two of them uh, graduated 96%. One quit, and one got arrested, and so we quit for him. Um, so, um, yeah, it was like it was like realizing that you know you 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 have to work a bit harder to make um, all the puzzle pieces fit, right? You can't. You just you can't stay with that myopic view that you had or that that same view that you had for all those years. It changes because the job, the job changes your perspective. And, and when you're when your boss, when the chief of the organization says, I expect successful people, I expect you to graduate people and get them through the program. Uh, that I took that challenge seriously and I had to figure out ways yeah. to do that, you know, that was different than what people had done before. I remember two things. Number one, not in any particular order, but um, 
that I, as a unionized member, um, that I had interactions with the union as a member of administrative staff that I didn't ever have before. Very interesting dynamic that was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and when we were talking about shift, I remember when you were talking, I, I was reminded, um, I remember not the feeling of the realization of, I don't need to finish this today because I'm going to be here tomorrow. And that was one of the biggest differences was that you were, you were there, you were present, you were uh, very, very different than, than shift type stuff for me. Um, <clears throat> you know, again, coming in and, and feeling like you needed to get it done because you were going to go home for a couple of days, whatever that looked like based on the shift um, working five days. And we had the opportunity to work four tens. Um, I did for a while, but I actually found it to be more relaxing to work five eights than four tens. Uh -huh. Um, because I could, I could plan my, my weekend. And if I needed to flex my time or whatever the case was, I could do that. Um, so it was really interesting. How about you, Rob? 24 hour shifts until I was chief. And then, um, I supposedly worked eight hour shifts, but, uh, it was more like 10 or 12. It seemed like, I mean, it was, I mean, you're, you're always on, uh, when you never when worked in admin, you never worked in admin spot. Wow. No, not until I got promoted to, well, so I, as a shift commander, yeah, I had admin role, but it was still on a 24 hour shift because I was a right. uh, shift commander. Um, and then from captain, you, you go to fire chief and it, that's an eight hour all admin role. Right. So. Right. So Jen, you go do your stint in training. You enjoy it. I would assume. Oh, I loved it. And then what came next? So while I was at the training academy, um, they actually upgraded the position uh, to, then we call it division chief, now we call it deputy chief. And so I was promoted and I stayed in place in training. Uh, but then I also inherited uh, the communications division, oversight of that and uh, uh, oversight of the EMS division, uh, which were two, again, new Divisions that I had never dabbled in. Obviously, I did EMS and operations, but I had no idea what EMS administration was about. And our dispatch center is, is run by uh, civilians, but we have um, embedded in there, you know, um, uniformed members that serve as administrative duty officers. And so, and then we had oversight of the response committee, uh, response improvement committee. And so, Started dabbling, you know, again, expanding, expanding my uh, reach into uh, you know, a lot, what we call support services, but different, different divisions in, in the organization. So uh, while I stayed in training, I then uh, I, <laughs> I inherited a couple new jobs, which was exciting because uh, I had not experienced either one of those either. And so, you know, for those a couple of years, I think it was two years, I was total down at the fire academy, uh, one year as a fire director, one year as a division chief. Um, and I was taking it all in, just learning all, all these new things that I had never known uh, in the organization. So it was really exciting period of time. Um, a lot of, you know, uh, again, professional maturation and growth occurred during that period, availed myself to new processes, networking, you know, started to expand, um, you know, my relationships uh, outside of the organization. Uh, 
because I needed to. I started working with HR more, Office of Law, Dispatch Center folks. Um, and, and again, just it was just a... It was just a just a, an evolution of of learning, you know, um, the the bigger job that it entailed. What do you remember learning that was most significant? You said you did a lot of learning. Um, I think it was more. Uh, well, one uh, with the communications uh, division was how to interact with. Um, they have a, a director of communications, um, but she's non-uniform. Yeah. And uh, so learning to interact with that group of folks um, who ran the dispatch center. Um, you know, they are the. You know, they they they. They run the dispatch center. They do all things, you know, call taking and dispatching. And then we have a presence in there. Um, so learning, you know, learning how to navigate that relationship. Um, it was a lot of relationship building and understanding. And, <laughs> whew, you know, I mean, again, you know, you're talking about, you know, labor and 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 non-labor, not you know, non-unionized workforce. Yeah. Um, you know, and then EMS administration. I just didn't realize. I guess I didn't know what I didn't know. But you know, I, you know how um, political EMS administration is, right? Working with all the hospital partners, the regional hospital systems, um, you know, the county administration, the county executive, um, you know, has relationships with these hospital administrators as well. And I just, I didn't know what I didn't know about how political administering emergency medical services was. You know, our medical director was heavily involved. I got to actually, uh, you know, work with him. Uh, quite a bit and understand, you know, the different uh, facets of, you know, uh, we were adopting a just culture uh, algorithm and, um, you know, navigating that and taking less blame and, and finding root cause analysis, which was a lot of fun. What What is, what is that? The How just culture. Just, just culture. What is that? Yeah, it's, so just culture is, is a system that's used mainly, uh, you see it mostly in the hospital systems. And it seeks to identify whether, you know, there's a, a there's a, a system issue, a policy or process issue, whether there was a, uh, a human error um, that can be accounted for through policy and education, uh, whether the person was uh, engaged in an at-risk behavior, that way you can correct through training again, or, or if it's just outright reckless behavior, um, like willful disregard. Um, and so it, it separates out and it, it, it chases down the root cause of of the of the error and then you, you from there you fix it whether it's systemic whether it's a human behavior or whether somebody just you know is acting in an egregious manner and it really helps you to you know it helps you synthesize the problem and then really apply a, a solid solution is that driven by county hr or is that a fire department no policy? um actually it was something that uh our medical director that his hospital system uses and a lot of hospital systems use and he shared it with us as a resource, and we just uh, adopted that that model and process internally. So it's it's a fire department uh, process now. So. And and what was what can you share as far as what did you learn from the implementation of that process? I think you know, I mean, again, it's multifaceted, but I think what you learn is that, um, especially when it comes to emergency medicine and our and our providers and our practitioners, that you know, a lot of the protocol violations or you know the complaints that you get, um, 
are, are less, you know, at first when you hear about these things, right, um, it infuriates you, right? You're like, oh my gosh, how could this happen? And, uh, but you take, you take a step back and you start looking and a lot of times it's a systemic problem. Um, or yeah. the person, you know, the person maybe could have uh, valued from some additional training and insight and some mentorship and really all it requires is, is a case review. And then you, you take that and, and you share it with other providers. So you prevent that from happening again. I think that the biggest takeaway is very few of our people intend to violate protocols. They never want to harm people. Um, I think those those cases, when you apply that just culture, you find out that it's less than 1%, maybe less than a half a percent of your people that that make mistakes that are that, that, that would be considered truly at-risk behavior. Um, and so I think from there you learn to really grow your organization, you grow your providers and, um, and provide them with the resources that they need and, and, and get away from some of that punitive model. Um, you know, you always hear like, you know, EMS eats their own. And, and we had to get away from that, that narrative because, you know, when you're, when you're in trouble all the time, then it kind of, it feels that way, right? It feels like you're the target of, you know, of, of, of people coming down on you and you're just trying to do a good job in a high paced environment. And, um, yeah, so I think it's a good model. I think it's a great model. And I think it really does reveal that, you know, by and large, what, you know, what we suspect is true. And that is, you know, we have really good people working for us and, and, and their intent is always good. And they, but they sometimes make mistakes and sometimes there's cultural drift, right? I mean, we drift away from our own policies sometimes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's why one of the most impactful quotes uh, that I heard was from, uh, Jocko Wellinger, at least from Echelon Front, that said, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. And mm -hmm. so it, it's not a policy issue, it's a it's a culture issue. It's Yes, we understand what's written down, but what do we do every day? What, what's get, what gets reinforced mm -hmm. every every day? Uh, what, what gets overlooked every day? Mm -hmm. uh, and how does that translate into not action, but decision-making, because there's a difference between actions and decision-making, right? Uh, and how do people make decisions and what are they making those decisions based upon? Um, and when you get up on the balcony and you start looking down at an organization, regardless of how big, um, you can really see things that other people just can't see. I, I had the benefit of doing that and uh, I find myself getting a bit deluded with it now, but when I was brand new in my new organization, I came in with the ability to look at the internal process as an outsider mm -hmm. because I didn't know any better. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, how, how does the, uh, the organization respond to that? Do they, do they seem to like it? Or is that something that's been well-received? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, most of our providers are, are more comfortable now. Um, knowing that, you know, the hammer's not going to fall when you make a mistake. And um, I still think, you know, people are still uncomfortable when they have to go through, you know, the case reviews because, again, you, you know, you're applying a certain level of scrutiny um, to, to, you know, review the facts of the case and to figure out what happened. Um, so I think, you know, human dynamics or human nature is, is, is always going to be there, right? People are always going to be a little apprehensive, a little, a little afraid. Um, but I think, you know, by and large, over time, you start to break down those barriers and 
you know, you start to build some trust and, and know that it's not the end of the world when you make a mistake, you know, um, because we all do. We all do. Agreed. So the the final position is the position that you're in. Is that uh, is that an accurate statement? It is. Yeah. I mean, I was interim chief for six months, but I'm this is the position I've been in for six years. So this is this is it. This is where I am. And and give us the official title again. Uh, assistant fire chief. Assistant fire chief, of which there is one. There are two of us. Two. Okay. So you're the assistant fire chief overseeing. More operations or admin or how does that break down? Yeah, so we actually split everything. So we split field operations. So the other assistant chief, he has uh, half of field operations, A and B shift, and I have C and D shift. And then I maintain oversight of the Fire Rescue Academy, uh, Fire Prevention Bureau. I have recruitment under me and a little bit of fire admin. And then he has uh, staffing, uh, logistics, and uh, we kind of co we got a co-parent EMS and safety because it crosses over everything we do. So we had yeah. had that model for a long time. And then when our chief came in, our new chief came in, she separated us out and he went 100 percent operations. I want 100 percent administrative. And we did that model for about a year, year and a half, maybe. Of course, COVID upset the apple cart and he wound up getting shifted to emergency management. So I had everything for a solid year, which was wow. uh, was a bit That's too a much. Yeah. But what we what we you know, what, so the, the difficult part about sharing is that we're two people. And so we have different decision making and different pathways. But the two of us align very much on, on what we want for the department and what we want for our people. And so while we recognize that we're different people, we still have the same sort of you know, core mission. And we talk uh, all the time, all day, every day, every evening. It's not a weekend that goes by that we're not talking um, to make sure that we're trying to balance, you know, the, the, the two shifts so we don't have two different departments. Um, but for one chief to have all of operations with a thousand members is just an incredible undertaking. So we had to balance it back out. Yeah. What did you learn being the interim fire chief for six months? Um, wow. So it's a big job, right? You guys were fire chiefs. Um, so, you not. know, I, oh, okay. I, I thought, you, I thought, you, okay. I thought you both were. Okay. So, no. um, well, yeah, lucky you. <laughs> no. So, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a big job, right? And, uh, and, and I, you know, um, so I, I think the thing that you learn is, is really the value of your team. Um, because you're only as good as, as what your team can produce. And your team can only produce as much um, as the capacity they have and the support they receive. So, um, you know, our, our job was really to kind of just steer the ship and keep it stable until the administration had made their decision on, on, you know, on who, who they wanted their chief to be. And so, you know, we stayed at work and uh, continued to, you know, uh, be involved in contract negotiations with the, with the union. Um, you know, we started developing a strategic plan and, you know, getting our folks together, started making some some policy changes that we had been wanting to make for a while. And so, you know, we, we kept moving forward momentum. But um, I think the biggest thing is just really understanding that, um, first of all, that's a tremendous job. Um, that's a huge, huge responsibility. But um, is the value of relationships and the value of the people that you work with. Uh, and work for and and, and, man, and that relationship management piece. So, 
you know, it's just, it really, it was really, uh, it was fun. Um, I had a good time. Um, but I gotta tell you, there were days where I came home and I'm like, whew, this is, uh, this is a lot, you know? Yeah, I, I can imagine. I, I went through the, <clears throat> the I chiefs fire service exec, executive development institute, the FESDI program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And through that experience, I discovered that uh, I really didn't want to be a fire chief. I, I, I aspired to, to be it as a way of achieving a goal, but, um, and I probably would have enjoyed parts of it, but it really wasn't what I wanted to do, at least not at that point in my life. Um, having done it, is it something that you feel that you want to do or something that you feel that you definitely don't want to do? You're still on the fence. So I, I definitely, um, I definitely aspire, uh, for more. Right. And so, um, where I'm on the fence at this point in my career is, do I want a fire chief's job or do I want something bigger or something different? Right. So, um, I would absolutely, uh, I would absolutely like to be, you know, um, in a position in, in a leadership position greater than I am. And so I would, yes, I would still uh, like to be a fire chief, but I'm not so sure that as I hit the back end, um, you know, get closer to my 25, that that's enough for me. Um, I'm always keeping my options open and I don't mean, you know, that's enough for me. Like I need a bigger job. I need to be, you know, a C-suite executive. Um, but what, you know, what, 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 you have to look at what's left in your tank, right? And so I've always said, people always said, how long are you going to work? You're going to work 25 years. You're going to work 30. You're going to work 35. I'm going to work in this organization until either the organization is no longer good for me or I'm no longer good for the organization, right? And so I don't have a time stamp of whether I'm going to work 25, 30, or 35 years. I have a real sense of my commitment to this organization and my commitment to myself is one that the time for me to time out will be when one of those two things happens. Either I'm no longer good for the organization or the organization is no longer good for me. Right now, both of those things are, are, are doing well. Um, and so, but I don't know what the next, um, what the next phase of my life looks like. Will I be a fire chief? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, will I branch out into uh, local government? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, you know, the uh, the private sector is very appealing for people who have been in, in, in government for a long time. Um, you know, my spouse works for private sector, and I think, man, if I could just get a holiday bonus, wouldn't that be awesome? Um, you know what I mean? Or, hey, how about a ream of paper to take home and put in the printer? But, um, no, it's it's good. You know, so I, I just, you know, I always keep my options open. And, look, and, and, the, best, and, and the reality is um, I love life, you know, and, and I live life to the fullest. Uh, personally and professionally. And so I'm always looking ahead. And I, and I know a lot of folks in my organization who have retired and they have struggled with the concept of retirement and closing the chapter in the fire service. And I think, you know, it goes back to that transition, always having a transition plan. There's so much I want to do in life, um, be it in the fire service or be it somewhere else. Um, as long as I have life and energy, I'm going to live it uh, to the fullest. And so I don't know. I don't know how my story ends. I don't know how it ends in the fire department and I don't know how it ends professionally, but I know um, that I've got a lot more to give and in various capacities. And so I keep my options open. 
for you. You know, it's yeah. even having a plan. I, I thought I had a really good one. And I was thinking about this today. It's funny you should say that. And my plan was, I thought, pretty rock solid. And then, of course, circumstances changed. And my plan didn't account for those changes. So I wound up in a place I didn't expect to be. And I am infinitely more happy and satisfied doing what I'm doing now than had I been, I think, had I followed my plan. So you never know where you're going to wind up, right? Yeah, it's true. Rob, do you have anything for Jen? Just gratitude. Gratitude for you being my friend. Um, gratitude for our time together at the National Fire Academy. Like I said, uh, Jen, I, uh, you, you obviously impacted me. Uh, you know, here we are. I, I think looking back on it, we, we did graduate 2015. And, you know, here we are seven years later. Uh, and I'm calling you and saying, hey, I, I, I think you would be ideal guest. And um, you, uh, you certainly delivered. Um, I got a lot. Of, I mean, I thought I knew a lot about you, um, but uh, wow, um, you're a fantastic person, my friend. And, and I and I am so grateful that you came on. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you. And I appreciate, you know, I, I'm humbled by by your perception. And 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 and, and I, I, too, value um, the relationship that, that we have and and and, and all the folks, um, you know, I mean, I look the fire service. You know, we just have a, we have a, a profession like no other, right? We we have the ability to to make relationships and establish bonds with people all across the world, and um, and you know, and all for the same reason, all for the same purpose, and and for that calling for public service. And so, um, I would say, you know, I I just you know I I landed in the best career ever, um, you know, being in the fire service, and I have met some of the most phenomenal people, and so I, I echo. Um, you know, the same, uh, and, and thank you guys both for your time and, and for the invitation, um, you know, to, to join your, join yeah. your podcast. I think you're doing great things. And, um, I think, you know, look, if, 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 if your story resonates with just one person, then you've made an impact, right? If, if you connect with just one person, yep. then you've made an impact. And so, um, yeah, I think you guys are doing great things and I, I wish you, wish you all the best in your endeavors. I appreciate it, Jen. It was a pleasure getting to, to know you. I do have one more question sure. for you. But before I get to that, I agree. And re really, that's what we set out to was, if we reach a mass audience, fantastic. But if we, if we reach just that one person, and we have, I know we have, because people have reached out to us and told us that we've made an impact. So I, I will ask you, of what in your career, of what accomplishment are you most proud at this point. So this is where that apple pie, humble pie comes in, right? So, um, you know, at the time, it didn't matter to me. Um, but I was the first uh, female assistant fire chief ever in the history of the organization. And by virtue of being the interim fire chief, I was the first female to ever be the fire chief in the organization until, yeah, you until were. our chief came. Yeah, until our chief came in and she was the first permanent fire chief. Um, and so, you know, to me, that never really, it never really mattered until, um, until I made assistant chief and uh, the county executive at the time had, had a ceremony or had a press event. And it was the very last time that my father would see me get promoted. 
um, to this rank in the organization. Um, he was able to, you know, with some mobility assistance, uh, my mom and my brother get him down to the press event with the county executive. And the former fire chief and um, and, and my spouse was there, and and the and, and the uh, mother and the husband of the late uh, Danelle England Dancer, the first female in our fire department, were able to attend the ceremony, this wow. press event. And um, so that's awesome. You know, the sort of the pinnacle of my career was to be celebrated in that way with that group of people, and to have my father uh, witness that. Um, he did not. He was not alive for me to be the acting fire chief, the interim fire chief. He had passed um, about a year prior, um, so sadly he didn't get to see that. Um, but he did get to see me ascend to where I am today. And um, anywhere he went, he would pre- he would profess, "My daughter's the assistant fire chief in Baltimore County," and they would be like, <laughs> "Who cares? <laughs> right? Who cares yeah. what your daughter does?" Um, but he was so proud, yeah. and just to have him there. Um, that was truly the proudest moment. And so being the first female didn't really resonate to me until I realized the impact it had on others. Um, my family, yeah. uh, first and foremost, but also other young women. Um, I was then voted, you know, in the top 50 women to watch in the Baltimore Sun paper. I was uh, given the uh, Baltimore County Women's Commission, uh, Woman Making a Difference of the Year Award. And so seeing then how that went beyond the fire service, the impact it made and, and for, for, for women, but young women and not just in the fire service, but in, in all walks of life and every profession uh, has been incredibly humbling and then very rewarding. And so I think if I, if I had to say there was a capstone in my career thus far, that, that was it. That was the, that was the, that was the highest point that I've, that I've felt so far. And that's just, you know, my dad, He's my confidant. He's my guy, you know, but the, the day he walked in and, and he looked at the fire chief and the fire chief said, Mr. Utz, your daughter outranks you. <laughs> it was just epic. It was epic. So it was, it was good stuff. So anyway, that's it. That's Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Jen, we thoroughly enjoyed having you and uh, hopefully we have a chance to cross paths. I'll actually be in Emmitsburg next weekend for the national oh, yes, of course. firefighters yep. the family weekend yep i don't know whether or not you, it'd be my first time doing that mm-hmm. yeah so uh, uh we yeah um, I may, if, I, if i can attend i will i try we try to get up there i know our chief will be up there for sure but yeah if we can get up there we will all right so maybe we'll see you next weekend if not uh safe travels and and best luck on on the rest of your career thank you i appreciate it gentlemen good night everybody all right, take care Bye-bye.